Matt, where's your crew? On the third planet. There is no third planet. Don't you think I know that? There was, but not anymore. Bridge to all decks. This is a biggie, a big Enterprise incident with Scott and Steve. I'm Scott Nance. And I'm Steve Morris, and I have to say that this might be the most exciting and thrilling episode maybe we've done so far. Uh, I, I could not agree more, Steve, because I remember when we first started doing Enterprise Incidents, I remember thinking, God, we are so... We are so far off from like some of the, like the all-time great Star Trek episodes, but here we are. Not only are we going to do our deep dive for what is inarguable, inarguably the most exciting, the most, the most popular, the most rewatchable, consistently rewatchable episode of Star Trek, but we are once again joined by a very, very, very special guest who not only is my my good friend, someone I've known for decades, but to introduce him again, he was the production assistant on Star Trek The Next Generation. He was the supervisor of Star Trek projects for Deep Space Nine and Voyager, associate producer for Star Trek Enterprise, and especially, I'm excited about this credit, for this episode in particular, the visual effects producer for Star Trek Remastered. Welcome back to the show after Court Martial. Dave the Man Ross. <laughs> Thank you guys for having me. And in the same room. In the same room. In the same room. Yeah, which is really nice. And if that wasn't enough, in addition to having Dave Rossi on our show, we have a special interview with the writer of the Doomsday Machine himself, Norman Spinrad, joins us. After our deep dive, this is one interview. We fought really, really hard to get it, but we got it, and it's a great interview. We cannot wait for you to hear our interview with Norman Spinrad. I cannot wait. Oh, my gosh, the Doomsday Machine. Uh, this is Tom Hanks's favorite episode of Star Trek. Oh, really? Oh. Yes, this is the, the episode that he, he loves the most. I mean, there's, there's so much about By the way, the I love that Machine. Tom Hanks has a favorite episode of Star Trek. That just makes <laughs> yeah. me really happy. But the question is, for, for, for the three of us sitting in this room, Dave, I would love to start with you on this. Do you remember like, like one of the first times you ever saw the Doomsday Machine? You know, I don't remember the first time I saw it, but, but what I do get senses of memory about are are moments from the episode that were like that stood out to me like this is the first time we're seeing another starship um which as a kid i remember that viscerally you know thinking this is you know because we know that there were 12 other starships and they're all out there exploring and and something that that they do on on this series that i don't think they necessarily do in the other series is that these this class of starship these 12 ships they are the pinnacle of technology and advancement in starship design there's there's even there's even lines like coming up in bread and circuses where you know merrick says this isn't just a spaceship this is a starship a very special ship exactly and so to see the constellation and see what has happened to it I remember that being very powerful for me, going, oh, my God, what could do that to one of these ships? And, mm-hmm. uh, and it puts them in their place very quickly, which is, I think, really fun. I, I, that's a really good point. And, you know, like when you're watching, 
when you're watching the original series, especially like for the first time, whether it's during its initial run in the 60s or maybe, you know, for the three of us discovering it through through syndication, you know, we're the syndication generation, you know, in Tomorrow's Yesterday, uh, you know, Kirk is explaining to Captain Christopher that there are 12 like it in the fleet. This is a Constitution class starship, which is which wasn't well, I didn't know until I got the, the blueprints in the 70s. Right. But I do remember I absolutely remember you know, when I was a little kid and I, and I was watching Star Trek every night on uh, Channel 17, WPHL Channel 17 in Philadelphia. That's how the announcer used to say it. <laughs> I know. So, <laughs> so yes, because I've said that many times. But, <laughs> but what I remember is Kirk and Spock standing there on the bridge. And he goes, look at it. And you see them approaching the constellation. And like, wow, it's another starship just like the Enterprise. Yeah. How cool was that to see another, like you've heard about it, now you are seeing another starship that looks just like the Enterprise, and it got the crap kicked out of it. Steve, what is your first introduction to the Doomsday Machine? It's so interesting what excited each of us about this show, because what you're talking about the first time seeing another starship never occurred to me. Wasn't thinking about it. For me, it's all the character moments. It's it's Decker and his breakdown. It's the you know, Spock taking over. It's it's Kirk saying, gentlemen, beam me aboard. It's these thrilling, thrilling moments. Those are the things that I absolutely remember about this episode. Well, th- this is an episode that, that, like I said, it is, I mean, you could say that Sitting on the Edge of Forever is the greatest Star Trek episode ever produced, which it is. But Doomsday Machine is the most fun and exciting Star Trek episode ever produced, ever. And for so many reasons. I mean, first of all, you've got the Moby Dick allegory, which was uh, definitely worked really well for Star Trek, especially Mm -hmm. when it came to movies like The Wrath of Khan and First Contact or an episode like Obsession. You have a metaphor for nuclear weapons, the H-bomb. Like, you know, we're building all these H-bombs and all these nuclear weapons now. But what happens to those weapons when we die off and they're still around. That, to me, as I got older, was such a really thought-provoking concept. What happens? They don't just turn off. They're still around and they are still very dangerous. The other thing is the music. Sal Kaplan's score. So this is his second score after The Enemy Within, which is also a really great score. But... Not only is his score for the Doomsday Machine so great because you have the theme for the Enterprise, you have the theme for the Constellation, and then you have the theme for, obviously, the Planet Killer. And when you, when, by, by attaching all these themes to the characters and the different ships, John Williams did that. He did that especially with Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back, and he also did that with Jaws when it came to the shark. The Planet Killer theme and the shark theme Sound very, very similar. Yeah, I never they? thought of that. But it is just, I mean, like, you, you th- this is an episode that, like, works on every single level. Uh, it is fast-paced. It is action-packed. It is epic. And you have what I think is the greatest guest star performance oh, yeah. of them all, William Wyndham as Commodore Matt Decker. Yeah, he's really, really good in this. And, he is. And it's so funny because... Uh, I just obviously watched the episode a couple of times, you know, in preparation for this. But um, it also reminded me that next week in my family, 
we kick off kind of the holiday movie season with all the Christmas movies and everything, but we always start with planes, trains, and automobiles. And William Wyndham plays the, he's at the very beginning of the movie, he plays this ad executive, and he doesn't even have a line. He's just sitting there looking at this artwork while all these people That's sit around him? this table. That's William Wyndham. Okay. Oh, man. So what's crazy, so we did a, a Cinephiles episode on planes, trains, and automobiles, which we are, as we're recording this, it's a week before Thanksgiving, we are re-releasing it this week, and I don't think I knew that because yeah. I don't remember. I mean, maybe I said it and I'd forgotten, but well, I don't he's think obviously I knew much that. older. He's wearing glasses. Yeah. He's you know, but and he doesn't have a line. It's funny, but every time I see it, I think, oh my god, there's Commodore Deck. Commodore, and this. By the way, uh, William Wyndham, he has just on TV more than a hundred, more than four hundred credits, more than four hundred. Here's a guy who 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 worked uh, like. Nonstop over the decades, and I'll get into into all that in a minute. But but uh, I mean, really, I mean, don't you agree that his performance is like like the the one, or is there like who is better? <laughs> I, I I would take way too much time to think about it, and I want to know how this episode came about. Okay, well, that is a great question, Steve Morris. So so the Doomsday Machine was written by Norman Spinrad, who was twenty five years old when he wrote this episode. Uh, Norman Spinrad is a science fiction writer. He's a writer of books like the Solar. Agent of Chaos, The Iron Dream. On TV, he wrote uh, an episode of, of Land of the Lost and Werewolf. And in film, he wrote uh, The Red Siren and Druids. But this episode was written, it was directed by Mark Daniels, who is one of the top three directors of the original series, next to Joseph Pevney, next to Ralph Sinansky. Now, Steve and I have been talking, you know, this is, this is a, uh, 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 you know, we're, we're well into season two. And so here you have a series where the per episode budget at this point, before it dropped later, was $185,000 per episode. Now, all the episodes that we covered so far for season two, Cat's Paw, Metamorphosis, Who Mourns Are Adonais, The Mock Time, uh, they, uh, Friday's Child, they all went over budget, which is understandable. Because, come on, are you kidding me? Yeah, right. Sure. Right? $185,000. So you would think... Looking at this episode, the Doomsday Machine, you would think, Steve, right, that this would go over budget too, right? I would assume. I assumed it did. Well, I assumed it did too. Guess what? I was wrong. This is the first episode produced for season two that came in under budget. That's so crazy. So the cost for the Doomsday Machine was one hundred and seventy-six thousand three hundred and thirty-six dollars, bringing it. $8,664 under budget. The big reason, why, well, there are two big reasons why it came in under budget. One is they did not have to really use anything on stage 10. There was no planet that they had to build. Right, all model show. All model and all, all enterprise sets redressed for the Constellation. That was one way they kept the cost down. The other way was this. Normally, the production schedule for the original series was six Days per episode. Oftentimes, they went over schedule, sometimes to seven or even eight days. That drove up the budget. But for this episode, the producers challenged Mark Daniels to, to get the Doomsday Machine, all the principal photography done in five days. Wow. And, 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 and as a bonus to Mark Daniels, he would get $500 if he accomplished it. He did. But there was an expense to that, and I'll get into that. And uh, he, he got his bonus. But this episode was filmed between June 20th and June 26th, 1967. Again, just five out of those days. It was the 36th episode 
of Star Trek to be filmed, which includes The Cage. And it was the 35th episode to air, which it did on October 20th, 1967. The score, again, composed by Saul Kaplan. Uh, the score was recorded on August 30th, 1967. The visual effects, all those great shots of the, the planet killer and the constellation by Cinema Research Corporation. And the Doomsday Machine is an Emmy nominee. An Emmy nominee for Outstanding Achievement in Film Editing by Donald R. Rode. And it is a Hugo Award nominee, which, as we all know, it lost to Dave. No, I don't know. What is it? City, City on, on the, the Edge, edge of Forever. forever. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> if you're going to lose a Hugo Award. Exactly. That's the episode uh, to lose it to. But, uh, uh, again, the you know Norman Spinrad came up with the story treatment. And when he came up with the treatment on February 5th, 1967, the title of the episode was The Planet Eater. Uh, not, not uh, you know. It sounds just, like a Land of the Lost episode. Yeah, it's also <laughs> like hanging your hat on like the concept of the episode. He did a story outline on March 2nd. He did his second draft teleplay on May 8th, which by that time it was retitled The Doomsday Machine. And Gene Kuhn did not one, not two, not three, but four script polishes, the fourth of which the second revised final draft teleplay came in on June 14th. The idea uh, came about as uh, Gene Roddenberry invited Spinrad to write an episode after Spinrad had written favorably about Star Trek in Cinema Magazine. This was actually Spinrad's second story idea, one that they really liked a lot. Um, but some interesting things about this episode that we'll, we'll get into is uh, how, uh, well, by this point, uh, William Shatner was a uh, little, little protective of his character to the point where it caused some tension with the other actors, including Leonard Nimoy, who by this point was, no question, he was the most popular character in Star Trek. And, and he caused a bit of a ruckus when he played hardball with, uh, with starting season two, coming back for season two. But also, Leonard Nimoy was nominated for an Emmy, and William Shatner was not. And William Shatner was the star of his show, and he had it in his contract where he would have more lines than any other actor in the script. And by this point, he did start counting lines. <laughs> yep, that, that happens. Um, <laughs> would you like to know some of the things going on in the world when they were filming? Yes. Well, the first one is Muhammad Ali who had recently been stripped of his title as the world heavyweight champion, and he was found guilty of draft dodging. And Ali demanded that they give him his sentence immediately. He was given the maximum penalty, five years in prison, $10,000 fine. He continued to appeal it for the next three years while he couldn't fight, and he was just on the lecture circuit and doing other things, until in 1970 the Supreme Court acquitted him, and threw out the penalty, and he was able to start boxing again. Wow. And this is all because he refused to fight in the Vietnam War. So a so quick personal story. So, so during that time, my dad has a great story. So I don't know why Muhammad Ali was in Philadelphia around that time, but my dad was at a really nice restaurant, and he went to use the, the men's room. And uh, he's in the men's room, and he's washing his hands, and, and standing next to him washing his hands is, yep, Muhammad Ali. Wow. So... My dad looked over and says, you know, uh, hi, champ. And uh, Muhammad Ali says to him, eh, I'm not the champ anymore. And my dad said to him, you will always be the champ. 
Nice. Oh, that's Isn't that awesome. cool? That's Way great. to go, Dad! So yeah, your dad right? was an Ali fan. Oh, yeah, he was a big Ali fan. Which, because at the time, there were lots of people that were definitely not my dad. My dad, my, my whole, you know, my dad was definitely, he was like, no, you'll always be the champ. Yeah, that's I thought great. that was cool. That's cool. <laughs> Here, here's, here's a strange one. So uh, on the same day, the House of Representatives passed 385 to 26, a law making it a federal crime to burn the American flag. Unfortunately, they omitted the word burning from the law, so it ended up not meaning anything. <laughs> um, on uh, June 21st, you know, we've been talking about in the last several episodes what was going on in the Six Days War in Israel. The war has just ended. And on the 21st, Rur al-Khatib, who is the Palestinian mayor of East Jerusalem, raised for the first time the Israeli flag over the town hall and shook hands with Teddy Kailin, who was the mayor of the Jewish half of Jerusalem. And Khatib, the Palestinian, said, all of us love Jerusalem. We will do our best for Jerusalem. And the Israeli said, now we are again citizens of United Jerusalem. We shall both have to adjust ourselves. Eight days later, the Israeli government dissolved the Palestinian municipal government in East Jerusalem and fired Khatib. So this is, you know... These are the origins of what we st- what we are still dealing with today. Yeah, yeah. Can you imagine like you know you're driving to work, you know, going to film an episode of Star Trek. You're listening to the radio. AM radio. All yeah. AM radio and all this stuff is going on. Right below Twin Peaks in San Francisco, there is a celebration of thousands of hippies who've come out to celebrate the summer solstice. And do you know what the name for this celebration was? Uh, the powwow, the gathering of the tribes. The summer of love. Oh. That is the origin uh, of this name. <laughs> came from this particular festival. Uh, Johnson, Lyndon Johnson arrived in L.A. for a big $500 person fundraiser and was immediately greeted by tens of thousands of anti-war protesters. The police tried to disperse them. It became violent. It was ended up being a pretty scary thing. On June 24th, Chuck Norris won his first karate championship. And as a martial <laughs> arts fan, I, I would expect nothing less for you to put that in. Um, on June 25th, 400 million people around the world watched the first live international satellite TV production. I know what this is. Our World. I literally, in my notes, I says, ask Scott what premiered on this show. Well, well, first of all, while you're saying all these events and while they are filming this episode of Star Trek, the number one album, of course, is Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. So during the Our World presentation, what did people get to see? They got to see the Beatles in the studio with all their friends. I mean, it was black and white TV, but with all their friends, including Mick Jagger, was there uh, perform through through a pre-recorded. It was not it was not sung live, but they recorded or they they sang "All You Need Is Love," and that was while they were filming the Doomsday Machine. Yeah, right. <laughs> How cool is that? That is cool. <laughs> Speaking of the Doomsday Machine, would you like to get into it? I would love to get into it because not only are we going to have a great conversation about the episode. You don't know that yet. Th- th- we, this could go totally off the rails. <laughs> I, that this is the one. <laughs> failure is not an option. <laughs> but I just know, I mean, this is, uh, you know, with, with the remaster visual effects, so, so Dave, as, as the producer of that series, which, by the way, bravo. I mean, you, you. and Mike Akuda and Denise Akuda just did an absolutely superb A-plus job, just really uh, enhancing so much of it, keeping the heart of it, and just doing it all right. But my first question, before we get into just doing the deep dive, is um, on average, how many visual effect shots did you have like, for the rest of the shows 
And how many visual effects shots did you wind up having on the Doomsday Machine? You know, I don't know what the what the average was, but I can tell you it was a lot less than the Doomsday Machine. You know, maybe I don't know what it was, fifteen to twenty, maybe twenty five, something like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, and Doomsday Machine, I think, had one hundred and four. Yes, that wow. is correct. Yeah, one hundred and four. So, so I can just imagine you and Mike and Denise like going like, "Ooh, it's gonna well, be fun." It, you know, it was, but it was, uh, and it was funny because I to get that number exactly, I called Neil Ray the other day, who was he's we were good friends. He's the uh, he was the visual effects producer on it from the CBS digital side. And I said to him, hey, do you remember how many visual effect shots there were for Doomsday Machine? He went 104. (laughs) (laughs) I said, burned into your memory, huh? And he was like, yeah, I'm not going to forget that one. Wow. Um, So, yeah, that was was an intense job. And they had been working on it uh, quite a long time. And... uh, you know that this this episode while we were doing it had a lot of press around it because certainly we're now tinkering with something that fans just loved and there were fans doing alternate their own visual effects to show how they would have done it and it, was, it was a whole thing man it was a whole scene man yeah but uh, but they you know and and there's there's places where we certainly missed the boat which I'll 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 kind of point out as we get through it but things I wish we would have done that that we didn't and part of it is we were just moving so quickly mm-hmm. to try and get these episodes out. I mean, the the budget and the schedule for these were absolutely insane. You know, they had like two weeks wow. typically prior to the episode airing to get things done. I mean, there was not a lot of time for a lot of these. So, um, so one of the things that they worked on immediately, they came to us and said, what is the most difficult visual effects shot in all of the original series? And Mike Okuda... Um, uh, expertly said it's from the cage where they go in through the dome oh yeah and, and oh, into yeah. the bridge so they started working on that shot uh immediately and they had been cuz they had to digitize characters which you know we didn't do a lot of yeah. um but then obviously the second one was doomsday machine and and working on it you know we had mike and i remember we were at their at mike's house and we had little enterprise models and like pencils that we were using as the doomsday machine to plot out. You know, we wanted to make sure it made sense that the movements made sense. And, and, uh, and so we spent a lot of time doing it. And that's where I got to sink my teeth into it because I love the space battles. And uh, so it was really fun to kind of plot that out. It looks absolutely amazing. And right now we're starting on the bridge. Kirk enters, heads directly to the communications station to ask about uh, some distress calls, and who is this that he's talking to? Distress call definitely came from one of the solar systems in this sector, Captain. It's not Lieutenant Uhura. No. It's Elizabeth Rogers uh, who plays Lieutenant Palmer, and so I, it's really a shame that, that uh, Michelle Nichols wasn't in this episode. I, I agree. Mean, it's like do we know why? Episode. So, yes, I do know why. So, by this point, she was not thrilled about the, the limitations with her character, even though Obviously, she, her presence and whatever she was able to do with the character, despite those limitations, was really progressive and forward-thinking and very important. Obviously, Martin Luther King definitely agreed with that and, and kind of talked to her to staying on the show. But she had a quote-unquote singing engagement and was not available. And I guess she was trying to maybe – I mean, I, of course, I don't know for sure, but – so Elizabeth Rogers was brought in as Lieutenant Palmer as a quote-unquote threat, and Uhura was back 
for the next episode. <laughs> and uh, we only saw Elizabeth Rogers one more time as Lieutenant Palmer in The Way to Eden, which was in season three. But the other thing we noticed is that Kirk is not wearing his uh, usual command shirt. He's wearing this green wraparound shirt. And the producers felt like, well, he is the captain. He should he should look a little different, you know. So they gave him this other shirt, and they were trying to to make Shatner feel more special because his uh, ego was a little bruised after not getting a, a, an Emmy nomination. So, but I always liked the green wraparound shirt, and they didn't use it after the second season. Sir, we're now within the limits of System L three seven zero, but I can't seem to locate Captain. Sensors show this entire solar system has been destroyed. They're not joking around. I mean, seven planets destroyed but the sun is still intact yeah how does that happen yeah i just love and by the way i love this great shot there's this great shot that i always liked uh because you know when you when you see the view screen of the enterprise usually always saw it from the sort of like standing right behind the helm position or the navigator position but you have this great shot and a, a an amazing touch that i couldn't wait to ask you about so kirk is is really concerned and he Walks by the view screen. Every solar system in the sector blasted to rubble. So as he's walking by the, re- the view screen in the remastered version, you see the asteroids and the star field. So how the hell did you do that? <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, again, for scheduling reasons, those kinds of shots can be very complex because you're having to, you know, it's a roto job yeah. where you're the person's going to have to, you have to go every frame and and mark that out. So... Because we told them this was an episode that had this many visual effects and they had a, a dedicated staff of people kind of slowly working on it from the beginning, we were able to pull it off. But there are a lot of episodes where there were similar situations that we couldn't do that to because there just wasn't time to do that level of work. So we go to the next solar system. It's destroyed. Every solar system in this sector is destroyed. And Kirk says... There's still no sign of the constellation. Matt Decker's in command. What could have happened to him? We get to another solar system. It still has two planets intact. And then our communications officer is picking up a disaster beacon. Have it on the sensors, Captain. By configuration, a starship stopped in space. She appears to be drifting. What, what I love about this teaser already is that we've already heard about Matt Decker. We've already heard about the constellation. Now we're seeing it. Yeah. And, and just the, the original effects of that is, uh, you know, they're all looking at the view screen. And you just see this mangled starship that looks just like the enterprise and for for anyone watching the the series in its original run for anyone like getting into the rotation and syndication uh you know from the beginning this is the first time that they are seeing another starship like all the other shows like they're they're it's just not doesn't feel special anymore to see another starship right but back then to see another starship for the very first time that must have been awesome. Oh yeah, you you sat up in your seat. I mean, this was this was something. We're seeing another starship, and you know, um, in the remastered version, this is one of the areas where where we kind of fell off a little bit. I little things like this bug me. We didn't light up the impulse engines on the Enterprise, mm. and you know, they're moving through these solar systems yep. with all these boulders and you know, asteroids and all this debris, and it was like. Uh, now when I see it, it's just that's the first thing that jumps out to me is the, <laughs> the dark impulse engines. Are like, ah, oh. those things are the worst. Yeah. They're the worst. If you could only go back, yeah. you know. But, um, but what's interesting is with, with the Constellation, when you watch Doomsday Machine with the original effects and you see the, the over-the-head shot sort of of the, of the Constellation drifting, 
you see where where parts of the Wharton cells are 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 deteriorated. So what I what I really appreciated with the remastered effects is that you you didn't change the dynamic of where the constellation was was uh, was was really kind of pulverized, yeah. but you just obviously gave the detail enhancement of those parts because uh, like if you hold the 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 original model which was a which was an AMT model kit that costs only three bucks yeah and they you know fixed it up and everything. Um, to make it look like, and it worked, you know, otherwise were they going to build another 11 foot model of the constellation? That's not going to happen. It's, and it still works. I mean, the original effects are still to this day, amazing, but the remastered effects, when you watch and you see the detail of the destruction, you know, you see the primary hole and you see the, how the, the, it's stripped away and you see kind of like the decks. I mean, like, yeah, we I, added warp coils into the engines. We, t- we tried to give as much detail as possible because this is a, you know, a living, working starship, and so it's not just melted on the outside. You know, we, <laughs> yeah. we kind of wanted to see the inside. And another note I have here is Saul Kaplan's score. Mm-hmm. When the Enterprise is pulling up to the constellation and they play that constellation music, it's so melancholy and so uh, sober, and it's just a really, really nice touch. I mean, it really sets up that this was something special and it's been destroyed. Correct. Well, yeah. it is seeing the Enterprise destroyed. I mean, yep. that's how it feels because the Enterprise is a character on this show that is beloved and that we've saved over and over again and here's where it didn't get saved. Here's the other thing about the bridge in this episode. First of all, it looks really busy. Yeah. Like you've got people running around. There are nine extras, I counted. Unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, there, there's there's something that you, re- you didn't really see a whole lot, at least not in the original series, you see these two security guards standing by the turbo lift. Like this is, this is, it's a, it's very intense. And throughout the course of this episode, you know, Dave, you've been listening to enterprise incidents, you know, how much we revere Jerry Finnerman totally as a cinematographer for this episode. This is a work of art. I think the, the beginning of the second season, I don't know what it is. Because he, you know, he's been working on the show since the beginning, but there's something just really dynamic about the artistry of Jerry Finnerman's cinematography in the beginning of season two. It was definitely evident in Cat's Paul. It was absolutely evident in Metamorphosis on the Planet with the Purple Sky. But the way he lights the bridge, the way he lights the constellation, you know, especially the because you're established. I mean, he really made it look like you were filming on two different sets. Yeah, I think he thrives when the situation is not normal. So purple light in Metamorphosis, castle medieval structure in Catspaw, and wrecked ship allows him to play with shadows and contrast in ways that aren't on the bridge of the Enterprise. So I think, I think that's part of why they really, really stand out. But this is a teaser. Like, this is a teaser. When Kirk says... He was attacked. Red alert. Red alert. Man your battle stations. The uh, security guards stand at attention. And, you know, everyone on the bridge of the Enterprise is getting ready. And then there's that shot of the Enterprise with the constellation in the distance. That's a teaser. And there's a great moment when Kirk says she was attacked. He moves to the captain's chair and Spock moves behind the captain's chair and is also staring at the screen. And Neboy's portrayal here is really interesting. And it caught me because of a lot of the things that you guys have been talking about on Enterprise Incidents. Spock has this look on his face and I'm not sure if he is catching up to Kirk's theory. Like, how does he know? How does he know that he was a, that that the ship was attacked, mm. or is he kind of 
looking at it like, I'm not so sure. You know, why are you jumping to this conclusion again? And it's it's just a if you look at his portrayal in it, it's interesting because he comes behind the captain's chair and he's looking at the screen, but he looks kind of puzzled. Mm. And I'm not sure. Mm. It's interesting to see based on how you've been talking about Kirk's kind of gut reactions and Spock's kind of, well, whoa, let's wait a minute right, here because right. there's, you know, and there's there's kind of a little of that in there. I found that kind of interesting. You know, it's really interesting that you point that out because I think one of the other things that really gave the beginning of season two the feeling where I felt like it, the series was really hitting its stride was that the characters knew who they were. The directors they were working with had, a, had experience on the show. They knew what they were doing. Gene Kuhn is the showrunner. He definitely knew what he was doing. But there are moments in especially season two where like they see something and there is a, uh, uh, there's a reaction to Kirk. There's a reaction to Spock. There's a reaction to McCoy. And, and from the looks on their faces, they are all thinking different things. Like in Deadly Years, when they see the dead body for the first time, and they cut to Kirk with his startled reaction. Spock's like nodding his head like, oh, this is interesting. Um, but I did not notice that about Spock in this teaser. I'm going to have to go back and check that out. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay, so the, the title, The Doomsday Machine, I mentioned that it was changed. Uh, so it was actually Gene Kuhn who suggested the title, The Doomsday Machine, especially as the, as the story was being developed and as, as especially Gene Kuhn started doing his polishes. And they brought to the fore the prospect where originally the, the planet killer was, was a, a leftover mining kind of device. And Kuhn suggested making it a weapon. And that was, was where the episode started to kind of take its shape. And that's where the title got changed to The Doomsday Machine. Now, Norman Spinrad, you know, so when we see the title card for The Doomsday Machine, was written by Norman Spinrad, directed by Mark Daniels. So Norman Spinrad was not part of the Writers Guild yet when he wrote this episode. So the minimum that the writers got uh, to, to write for Star Trek at the time was $4,500. But because Spinrad was not in the guild, he only got four thousand. Um, and that is, the, of course, the end of the teaser. We come back in Act One. The music is great when we come back. You mentioned the score again. There's so many motifs that Saul Kaplan did such a great job with. So you see the Doomsday Machine here, and then you see the Enterprise. It's great. And the Enterprise is moving towards this wrecked ship. We've got all phaser banks ready, and we're starting to do some sensor scans. The entire bridge is damaged and uninhabitable. The rest of the ship seems able to sustain life. And this is a, a, also a, a great way that they saved money because when Spock's giving his assessment, he says the bridge is uninhabitable. Mm. So they didn't have to redress the bridge, right? Right. That's one. The other one is they only had to dress engineering once because we never go into engineering on right. the Enterprise. Right. So it's, it's just a great use of sets and how they were able to make it a bottle show. And, and shoot it in five days. The more I think about that, the more I go, yeah, they actually didn't have a lot of locations. They're just redressing other sets and yeah. rebiting them. Um, but the one thing we find out, there's no other vessels around. So we go down to yellow alert, and we're going to beam over to the Constellation. We're going to border. Mr. Spock, you're in command. Acknowledged. So Steve and I just covered uh, Who More So Out or Nice, uh, which, which I love that episode. I do, too. I mean, it's a great episode. But that is an episode where we see... 
Kirk, part of the landing party, and Spock is left behind to command the Enterprise. So, so then we do a mock time, and now here we are in Doomsday Machine. So we're back to that structure where Kirk is on the away team, Spock is in command of the Enterprise. Landing party. Uh, uh, oh, right. Uh, <laughs> so, yes. Right. Before we see the landing party beam over to the Constellation in the new visual effects... There is a great shot where it shows the primary hull of the constellation all pulverized, parts of it open to space, and you see a little piece of asteroid, a little piece of debris hit the primary hull of the constellation and shatter into a million pieces. Yeah. So as we were doing that show, the original idea for the shot was that we just close in and show all the battle damage. And I just threw out the idea because, again, these ships are so special to me. Um, you know, I said, listen, this ship has had the guts kicked out of it, mm. and we should show that it completely cannot defend itself anymore. It has, it, it's just at the mercy of the universe, and the universe has given it one more kick while it's down. So can we have something just impact with the hull? Oh, wow. You know? And so they did. They added that little asteroid that kind of shattered against it. I just thought it was kind of poignant. It was just like, it just makes you feel even more Badly Bad. for it, yeah. You feel, yeah. you feel just like you said, Steve, how the Enterprise is a character. Because we look at the Enterprise as a character, we extend those feelings to other starships that look like the Enterprise. Sure. Uh, so we uh, beam over to the Constellation, and we've got two guys that are with us. And they were all named after Star Trek's three assistant directors. Oh. Rusty Meek, Elliot Schick, and Charles Washburn. So there's your answer. Well, there we go. I knew I knew you would have these answers. We also have Scotty and McCoy, and Scotty's going to go check out the phasers. Uh, McCoy's coming with Kirk, and it's a little bit of a detective story because Kirk is looking around. And he says, "No clutter, no half-empty cups of coffee. Whatever happened didn't happen without a warning." And I love Scotty walking into the just wrecked engineering. This mess was actually the first time that we are seeing the first appearance of the redesigned engineering room. Uh, with the ladder to the upper deck, and we're seeing auxiliary control. Now, they they did all this for the Constellation, but of course, the redesigned engineering would certainly appear in, in the rest of the original series. I think it looks way better. I oh, think it's yeah. much more interesting. The, the original engineering was kind of just big and open with those weird like things that uh, Finney was hiding behind. Yeah, that. those power plant things. Yeah. yeah, I think this looks much, much yeah. better. I also love that in the corridor, I love the three-person ladder. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah that's that they really all go cool. into. I mean, it's really, they put thought into this stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really, it, it, it's a functioning kind of thing. It's cool. Matt Jeffries. Yeah, it's he, really he great. He really, you know, they it's lucked really, out with yeah. Matt Jeffries. And seeing the auxiliary control room. I mean, anytime you could see another section of a starship, yep. mm. to me as a kid, was just magic. It was like, whoa, I want to play in that room now. Yeah, you know? yeah. yeah. What do you think did it, sir? I don't know, lad. But I want a full structural and control damage check, and I'm going to have a look at those engines. It just his character is so locked in at this point. Scotty, if there was any episode, as we will see throughout the course of this one episode, where he earned the title of the miracle worker, this is the one. Agreed. No survivors, no bodies either. Is it possible they were beamed down to one of the two planets? Spock goes. No way. One of them is like molten lead. The other got poison atmosphere. Of course they didn't beam down to these planets. I love that Spock actually said no way. He did, yeah. <laughs> seemed very colloquial for him. The warp drive, that's a hopeless pile of junk. The impulse engines are not too badly off. We ought to be able to do something with them. Phaser banks. 
Exhausted. They didn't give up without a battle. By the look of the constellation, and by Scotty saying that, you're going like, you've got this image in your head of like, whatever did this must have been pretty badass. Yeah. Well, and I have the image of them battling. Like, they, okay, they exhausted our, the Enterprise has never exhausted its phaser banks. Like, that must have been a yeah. hell of a battle, whatever the hell happened. But where are they? You can't imagine a man like Matt Decker abandoning ship while his life support systems are still operative. And then we hear, oh, maybe there's some computer logs and you can check them out in the auxiliary room. So that's where we're heading. And as they're walking down the corridor, they walk by a half-open door and there, slumped over a control panel, is Matt Decker. Commodore Matt Decker, played by William Wyndham. And no, this is not the the last time I'm going to say this, but what a phenomenal performance. He is an Emmy winner for outstanding continued performance by a lead actor in a comedy series for the show of My World and Welcome to It. Interestingly, on Broadway, back in the early days of their careers, William Wyndham was William Shatner's understudy for the world of Susie Wong. Wow. Oh, wow. So That's they, interesting. That is very interesting. They, they kind of knew each other. Uh, on Broadway, William Wyndham was in shows like A Girl Can Tell, Fallen Angels, Greatest Man Alive. On TV, uh, we would need to do a six-hour broadcast <laughs> of Enterprise Incidents just to cover everything he did. But his highlights include The Twilight Zone, The Farmer's Daughter, a great episode of Night Gallery, All in the Family, Mission Impossible, Love American Style, Dallas Highway to Heaven. Again, more than 400 appearances on TV alone. On film, he made his feature film debut in To Kill a Mockingbird. Oh, wow. He played the president of the United States in Escape from the Planet of the Apes, and he was hysterical in the uh, John Hughes movie She's Having a Baby. Ah, uh, that's why. That's why I didn't realize. So he's actually a part of the John Hughes universe too. But I mean, because 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 if he's in two John Hughes movies, yep. But well, that's right. Uh, that's a good point. Yeah, because of yeah. Uh, because of Planes, uh, automobiles. Yeah. But the original. So, so when Norman Spinrad was envisioning Matt Decker, he did not envision William Wyndham. He envisioned. Robert Ryan. Oh, Robert Ryan. I could see that. Who, like, I mean, the Dirty Dozen, the Wild Bunch. You could see where you're going, yeah, he would have been good. Uh, so he was the favorite choice, and Spinrad did write him in mind, but he was not available. And and uh, Spinrad was not crazy about William Wyndham's performance, but I guess when you have someone in mind for it. Uh, but, I mean, regardless, you know, well, Wyndham was great. To, to be real clear, his performance is big it is, <laughs> it, a, is. it is a lot and so if you as a writer if you had a different image this guy i can totally see why you would not like this performance but but his like the so the first thing we're seeing like like imagine seeing kirk in the position that decker is now exactly imagine like 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 prior to all this happening decker was kirk i mean even though as a commodore kirk is a captain and and commodores outrank captains uh when they're on the same ship but like what must have happened to destroy this man? Yeah, to completely crush him into such despair, disheveled, scruffy, and just a broken, broken person, but still someone that you completely empathize with. And and not just a starship commander. Dude, his insignia yeah. on his shirt lists means he is a fleet commander, which means he has command of his own ship but is also in charge of the starships around him. And, you know, it's a big job, and it's not something that I think you, you give lightly in, in a 
you know, in the Starfleet. Well, one of the questions that has occurred to me and never would have occurred to me until watching it this time is what would have happened to Kirk if the, he had gone through this? Exactly. Would he be as messed up as Matt Decker is? And as a kid, it was obviously, well, obviously not. There's something <laughs> wrong with Decker. Right. Like he, he clearly wasn't at Captain Kirk's level. But now looking at it now, I'm like, Kirk loves the Enterprise more than anything. If he sent his entire crew to die and he was on the wrecked version of the Enterprise and Spock and McCoy and all of them were dead and it was his fault, he yeah, might, that's a he really might good be point. pretty messed up. Absolutely. But when they bring Matt Decker around, they're trying to revive him. Uh, McCoy shoots him with the, with the hypo to kind of uh, you know, get him going and he's rubbing his arm. Kirk. That's Jim Kirk. It's like the only moment of levity that you will see from Decker throughout the course of this episode. What happened to your ship, Matt? A ship attacked that, that thing. What thing? What was it? What's so great about his performance is the steps. First, he's kind of blocked it out. And then you could see him reconstructing it in his mind. And as he's reconstructing it in his mind, and even to some degree doesn't want to face it, you can see him reliving those emotions. Yeah, that dawning know? horror of what yeah. he went through is all coming back now, you know? And that commitment, that William Wyndham's commitment is such a lived-in performance, fully immersive. He goes big. I mean, for sure he goes big. But you never lose sight of this character. He never goes too far. And and again, you just you just feel for him, you know? I mean, it's really something. Well, and there's a great, great writing choice, which is the, the, the normal choice is, okay, I got the captain right here. I'm asking him questions. He'll answer the questions. But that's not the choice they make. The choice they make is they replay his voice from his log. And so you get to hear, you get so many things at once. First of all, you get to hear how this guy sounded before he went through all of this. Right. And the second thing you get is you get to watch him react to himself in the past. And that makes this scene so much more interesting than just an expositional, Jim, this is what happened. Yeah, that's totally a agree. really great point. That's a real, because you're actually hearing... You're hearing Decker without actually seeing him, but you're envisioning him sitting in the captain's chair. Having being, his stuff together. You yeah. know, yeah. completely composed, being the commander of the starship, uh, talking to science officer Masada, which is a really cool name for a science yeah, officer. Yeah, it really is. I think it's, a, I think it's a, a, a prerequisite that if you're a science officer on a starship, you have to have a really science-y kind of sounding name to it, you know. Yeah. But, but while Decker is listening to his own log, there's a, there's a, a little bit of horror and then he's like nodding his head, like, yep, yep, that's what happened. And Kirk is standing there composed. Like, I wonder what Kirk is thinking as he is listening to his composed Commodore Decker say his captain's log and looking at this guy now. What, yeah. what happened to destroy this man this way? And one of the things we hear is that as they were coming into the solar system, they saw the fourth planet in the solar system was under attack. And Kirk goes, fourth planet on the two left now. Um, we say we're going to send these tapes off to Spock for some analysis. Um, and Decker now is trying to communicate with Kirk, and he says, We tried to contact Starfleet. Uh, no one heard. No one! And Kirk is asking the big question. What happened to your crew? Oh, I, I had to beam them down. Oh, we, we were dead. No power or phasers, useless. I stayed behind. Last man. Captain, last man aboard the ship. 
and you could see the emotion is just rising in. Yeah, in he's in like, well, that's what, that's what you're supposed to do, isn't it? Yeah, and but, the yeah. way and the way he says it, you know, where he's just like, oh, I had to beam them down, you know, like well, duh. I mean, <laughs> we were wrapped. Well, we and were, the thing you know. is, what he's saying is, I had to sacrifice my life to save their lives. Mm-hmm. And exactly the opposite thing happened. They say there's no devil, Jim. But there is a... Right out of hell, I saw it! And Kirk asks... Matt, where's your crew? On the third planet. There is no third planet. And that look, that completely vulnerable, devastated look, and that response... Don't you think I know that? There was, but not anymore. It is such a surrender. He is surrendering himself to the reality that that by trying to save his crew, he killed them. Oh, it's such a painful moment. And it the is. fact that he then goes on to say, you know... They called me. They begged me for help. 400 of them. I couldn't. I, I couldn't. <laughs> He's reliving it right there. And just imagine that moment. This thing is carving up a planet and they're just stuck there going, Captain, you got to get us out of here. Take a moment, take a moment and go, okay, it's Kirk who's the last person on the Enterprise and Spock is calling him very logically saying, I believe we won't survive much longer, Captain. And McCoy is saying, Jim, Jim, you got to beam us up. You got to do something. And Kirk can't do anything. Like imagine, put that moment in your head for, I mean. All all these times that I've, Rewatch this episode, and we're talking hundreds. I never really gave it much thought, like I am now, trying to envision what Kirk would have done in that situation, the lasting impact it would have had. Uh, like, what if this was the Enterprise and some other starship, like the Excalibur, came to their rescue, right? And and he was the one uh, in the briefing room, completely disheveled and devastated. Like, what? Wow, yeah. Well, and one of the things I, I've, I've thought about as we've been doing this show is like. In so many episodes, we almost lose the Enterprise because that's how drama works. You're counting down to the last possible second, as we do in this episode, and <laughs> yeah. at the last possible second, we win. Well, what that means is it's like a flip of a coin, a roll of a dice that one more second passed, and there's no Enterprise. It's not, yeah, Kirk is awesome. He's better than Matt Decker and everything, but he's this close to losing the Enterprise over and over and over again, and this is one circumstance where it was one second too long. And, the you know... Decker's determination is is kind of apparent just because he's in the auxiliary control room. He's he didn't give up. The bridge was destroyed. He had to clear everyone off the bridge because it was inhabitable. He went down to auxiliary control. He's trying to run things from there, just like Kirk will later on. So it's just, you know, um horrific tragedy to watch this man who is obviously just as heroic as Kirk. Right. You you know, and and Well, hold on. No one's as heroic as Kirk. Well, that's true. Yes. I apologize. <laughs> Another really great moment is after Decker has this breakdown, Shatner's performance is just wonderful. It's silent, but he doesn't know what to do. He moves closer to him. He's going to put his hand on his shoulder, and he stops himself. I mean, he's got to be thinking, that's me. What what do I do to help this poor guy, you know? And there's, it's just... uh, it's just tragic. Yeah, it really is. And now, you know, we step away. We go kind of behind the screen. Again, as you said, lighting is beautiful. And we get sort of more information from Scotty of what's been going on. And again, it's Kirk that comes up with the idea. He says, could some kind of general energy dampening field do that? 
And would the same type of thing account for the heavy subspace interference? Aye. That all adds up. It's Kirk doing what Kirk does. He's putting the pieces together. Yeah. Okay. And what's great is Decker is slowly kind of coming back. What does it look like? Well, it's it's miles long with a with a maw that could swallow a dozen starships. Well, what is it? An alien ship or is it alive or is both or neither? I don't know. I love this moment too. Again, it's it's a good combination of writing and performance because he asked Did you run a scanner check on it? What kind of a beam? Pure anti-proton absolutely pure the reason this is good writing is that we have no idea what this means right this is just complete made-up science stuff but because of the writing pure and then absolutely pure and his performance we know that is something totally unusual like we've never seen no one in starfleet has seen a beam of absolutely pure anti-proton whatever the hell that is it sounds very powerful but it goes like oh wow and it's what's great about it too is when he says absolutely pure there's a reaction from Kirk yes. looking towards yeah. McCoy, and Kirk knows. Are you kidding me? Mm. And, you know he knows what that means. And you know I did a little bit of research digging, and basically antiprotons is is antimatter. So this thing is using some combination of some level of antimatter to, to just destroy blow these, to, to destroy these planets. So it's really devastating. And the fact that Kirk knows when he says it, he's got this look to McCoy like we're in trouble. Yeah, this yeah. is big. We call up to Spock, who's been looking at the tape. She was attacked by what appears to be essentially a robot, an automated weapon of immense size and power. Its apparent function is to smash planets to rubble and then digest the debris for fuel. It is therefore self-sustaining as long as there are planetary bodies for it to feed on. You know, I mentioned how in earlier versions, uh, it was uh, the purpose of the planet killer was was to mine, but it was also in the earliest versions, it was supposed to be a living entity mm. from another galaxy. But uh, then it was changed. Uh, uh, Gene Kuhn suggested, you know, changing it to a machine, and then it, then it, uh, you know, Gene Kuhn was a genius. Gene Kuhn was a genius. I so wish that he had lived long enough to at least you know bask in his uh, glory. Yeah, because create- he deserved it. Totally. And to create this thing is just this cosmic juggernaut. Yeah. You know, is real it's terrifying. Yeah, absolutely it absolutely is. And and what we hear is A, it came from the galaxy outside the galaxy and projecting where it's gonna go, it's gonna go right through the most densely populated areas of our galaxy. So this part never really made sense to me. Okay. Because first of all, they have evidence of two solar systems that it's gone through. So projecting its course back and assuming it came from outside the galaxy seemed always seemed a little weird to me, a little a, a little jump to conclusion that you agreed. Know, yeah. Well, uh, everything if it goes far enough, it is going to come from outside, outside of the galaxy. The galaxy. Right. We just don't know where it started. <laughs> right. And the other thing is, if it needs planets for fuel, how did it get from one galaxy to another? Well, I, you know, I often wonder this. Like, so if there's one galaxy, Wait, are you and saying then Star Trek science doesn't entirely make or, sense, or <laughs> or I'm saying the Doomsday Machine has some kind of crazy hyperdrive mm. that allowed it to get from one galaxy to another without okay. having to do that. Uh, but but just like, so so if you're in the Milky Way galaxy and then you see, you know, it's going to take 300 years for the Enterprise to get to the Andromeda galaxy after the Kelvins mess with the engines. So you're telling me that there's no planets, no stars in between galaxies? Because right. maybe there are. No, the, I mean, it's mostly empty. It's mo- so, so there's absolutely nothing no, at no, all. No, 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 I'm not saying that. But it is a comparative. I mean, space is mostly empty inside a galaxy. There's an exhibit, uh, I think it's at uh, Griffith Park Observatory, where it sort of tries to show what the relative distance is between 
the sun to Mercury to Venus to each of the planets. And, it, and it's basically like, you know, if Mercury were, were two feet away from me and I'm the sun, then the Earth is like three miles away. Wow, you know, I, I, I totally made up what those numbers are, but it's the 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 amount of empty space. <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a film that um, that uh, Morgan Freeman uh, is the the voiceover artist for. It's a uh, uh, I think it's called Cosmic Journey, Cosmic Odyssey, something like that. And they do this. They're talking about scale. They go from biggest to smallest of what we know and it's a really interesting little uh, movie but one of the things they talk about is the fact that our galaxy and the andromeda galaxy are going to collide at some point and they do this model of what it looks like when the galaxies collide how their gravity pulls them together and they collide and they mix and they spin and some stars will be deposited in andromeda and some from right. theirs will come in ours and then we'll go our separate ways and the comment that always struck me was he says, and even though these galaxies are colliding, the distance between stars is so great that almost never would stars collide. I was going to say, uh, like, like, like that the prospect of galaxies colliding sounds like it would be such a cataclysmic event. Yeah. But the fact that there's so much space between the stars, and you can, and you can have Andromeda and Milky Way collide, but but not have any cataclysmic event, just crazy? shows you how yeah. much space there is between the stars. Yeah, yeah. This is a fascinating tangent we've gone on. <laughs> um, and right now, Kirk and McCoy are talking, because McCoy is going, why would anyone build a thing like this? Did you ever hear of a doomsday machine? No, I'm a doctor, not a mechanic. <laughs> that might be the weirdest placed one of those in all of this stuff. It's a weapon built primarily as a bluff. It's never meant to be used. So strong, it could destroy both sides of the war. Something like the old H-bomb was supposed to be. Kirk is extremely knowledgeable, and you know why he is, gentlemen? Because he is a stack of books with legs. That line from Gary Mitchell in Where No Man Has Gone Before has turned out to be one of the very defining threads that, that ties the character of James T. Kirk together. Because now he's saying like he's able to draw the parallel between the H-bombs of the late 20th century to this doomsday machine. So the thing that I find so interesting about this, so the original title was Planet Eater, mm -hmm. and it's Gene Kuhn who switched it to Doomsday Machine. Yes. What's so amazing about that is that takes it from a story that is about nothing to a story that is about something. Just changing the or All the action can be exactly the same. And changing what the identity of the of the antagonist is changes the meaning. I just want a very very quick digression. Uh, to me, obviously, this relates so much to Doctor Strangelove, you know, which comes Absolutely out in 1963. And and here's so we did Doctor Strangelove on the Cinephiles, and and this was what I learned about its production that uh, was so interesting to me is that Kubrick was obsessed with nuclear war, freaked out, obsessed with it, and as a genius knew everything about it and studied. And he bought a book whose name I don't remember, that would be uh, the inspiration for this thing. And his intention with his screenwriter was to write a serious movie about the possibility of nuclear war. And they spent six months trying to write a serious movie. And every time they got in the middle of it, they burst out laughing. Because the situation was so absurd. And finally, after six months of trying to make it serious, Kubrick goes, you know what? The world rushing towards its own destruction is absurd. The only way to talk about it is a comedy. And what, the reason I bring this whole story up is that I think Gene Kuhn found another way to talk about it, which is 
move it into the future, into science fiction. And now we can talk about the insanity of the Cold War and the insanity of these monstrous weapons that could easily destroy the planet in a way that Kubrick couldn't, Yeah, you know? And I didn't really know the difference between... I don't know why they locked on H-bomb. I would have just assumed that they went with atom bomb. I didn't know a lot about H-bombs. So I looked them up. I'm probably on the NSA list now because I looked up H-bomb. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but um, I had no idea that H-bombs were hundreds, if not thousands of times more powerful than an atom bomb. I didn't know that either. And at one oh, point, yeah. there were 40,000 of them in silos around the world. So all you need is like like couple. Right? Yeah. So, so I'm probably also on the NSA lo- list because I look it up and I will tell you some numbers since uh, I had this later. But uh, um, So the Hiroshima bomb was an atomic bomb, an atom bomb. It was 15 kilotons. 15 kilotons is 15,000 tons of dynamite. That's what that means. The largest hydrogen bomb, hydrogen bomb was over 50 megatons. Wow. It is, it is actually, it's 3,000 times bigger than the Hiroshima bomb. And by the way, we're going to get to 97 megatons, which is why I looked this up, because that's the, uh, what the uh, constellation will do when it explodes. There's also, um, back in the 90s, there was a book that uh, came out called Vendetta. I think it was by Peter David, but I'm not sure. And it presupposes that the Doomsday Machine was created as a weapon to face the Borg. Oh, I remember reading about that. That yeah. makes That's a great idea. Yeah, that's that a great a really idea. Great idea. That's a lot of retcon. Yeah, but it works. Yeah. <laughs> a doomsday machine that somebody used in a war uncounted years ago. They don't exist anymore, but the machine is still destroying. Another piece of good writing is you've just had some exposition. Now have someone interrupt the exposition and say, Oh, forget about your theories. That thing is on the way to the heart of our galaxy. What are you going to do about Matt, it? Take it easy. And he's right. Yeah. 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 yeah like, you're stop sitting around. That. Yeah. You're sitting around here, John. <laughs> First thing we're going to do is get you back to the Enterprise. Oh, no. I stay here. I'm not leaving my ship. There's no ship to leave. It's a dead hulk. And so McCoy and Decker are going to head back to the Enterprise. As soon as they get on the Enterprise, we hear a spot saying, Red alert. Red alert. They get to the bridge, the doors open, and after first seeing the destruction and after hearing Decker try to describe it, there it is on the screen, and not only do we see it, we hear it's the Looks very much like Commodore Decker's Planet Killer. On the view screen, you see the Planet Killer turn towards the Enterprise, and Spock says, It is pursuing us. But the look on Decker's face. That's what I was going to say. The look of, what is that look? Well, I, I just imagine your whole crew is destroyed. You're on the empty, wrecked version of your home. And let's just assume Decker loves the Constellation as much as Kirk loves the Enterprise. And now suddenly you are back on a crowded ship filled with life that looks exactly like the place that you called home. And just at this moment, which should feel like a moment of safety, the thing that killed everybody that you loved has just turned and is coming after you again. Now, when you were doing the revised effects for the Doomsday Machine, was there ever a consideration to make to make that look a little different? The, no. The only, the only, you know, we, we wanted to enhance what was there. Um, but, you know, it's interesting... Mike did some research into Norman Spinrad's original concept and what he wanted it to look like. And um, 
it, it's a much different thing. Norman Spinrad never liked the Doomsday Machine the way it was portrayed in the, in the show. In his original concept for it, he had an idea of something. There's, there wasn't really talk of its shape necessarily, but something that was bristling with all kinds of weapons. All there were weapons coming out of mm. this thing everywhere. It should have just been this crazy, you know. So what we did, and you'll see it in the opening to the next act, because there's a close-up of the, the doomsday machine coming in. We tried to add little divots and seams and and areas where it looked like maybe there was things there, and just over countless centuries of this thing encountering race after race after race. And battling these things, it's just been pounded down, pounded down, and now the only thing left is its main weapon, the main which weapon. it uses for for you know fuel. Mm, wow, yeah. that's interesting. And we're back in Act Two, and we see the Doomsday Machine coming. And the the great thing about the score, the theme for the Doomsday Machine is it's relentless. Yep. It is a constant in the universe. You know, it's a force of nature. It's this. This thing you can't stop. It's really great. It is the it is the shark yeah. of outer space. Yep. John Williams listening to this music might have you know, might have gone, hmm. When he was Johnny Williams writing. With Johnny Williams writing 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 in space. space. Yeah, yep, that's right. That's right. <laughs> it's closing on us, Mr. Spock. Closing, Captain. All right, lower your deflector screens long enough to beam us aboard. And they are about to do that, and they get hit by the doomsday machine. <laughs> Just uh, as that happens, the transporter is shorted out. There's a little explosion from the transporter platform. I have to say, the pacing of this episode just moves along. It's really fast. It's fast. It is brisk. It is just uh, 50 minutes of holding your breath from start to finish. And I love the sound effects in this episode, too. You know, that sound of the Enterprise getting hit, that cacophonous kind of, you know, rattling. But also what I love is the sound of the red alert. Mm. It after they get hit, the red alert doesn't sound normal. Yeah, it, it kind of gears up to it. It's like it's kind of going, you yeah. know. Yeah, it's out of tune a little bit. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. it's like this thing has just really affected the enterprise. The enterprise you know. Yeah. What yeah. one of the things that I love is that uh, Decker ends up at the helm. Like it, he's still because he's like Captain Kirk. Yeah. He, this is what is necessary to save the ship. And Spock. Point out one thing. So the transporter has shorted out, which means we can't beam Kirk aboard. If the transporter didn't short out, Rigel would be destroyed. Right, that's right. Because Kirk would have gone back to the Enterprise. You're right. The only thing that saves them is that the transporter is destro- doesn't work. Well, they, listen, they had to get Kirk off the ship because here's my question to you. What happens when Kirk is in the command chair of the Enterprise and Decker says, I'm assuming command? Oh, well, well. What happens if that happens? Well, I think eventually the same thing would happen, which is Kirk would say no <laughs> at a certain point. Yeah, but yeah, and, and the fact that he's not on the Enterprise just kind of prolongs that. But what I notice of watching this again is after the planet killer opens fire on the Enterprise and after they lose communications and Kirk says we're stuck blind and deaf and paralyzed no power well we just can't stand around while our ship is being attacked Scotty you've got to get me some maneuvering power so when we cut back to the bridge of the Enterprise this is what I noticed Spock is in the command chair Decker is standing right behind him with his arms folded he's coming back too okay he's regaining his composure He's getting his bearings back, and he says, Status report. 
he's already getting ready to assume power. Yeah, and he's back. I mean, he's a fleet commander. To him, this is like, it's two things, actually. It's him doing probably what he does. Right. I'm the Commodore. I'm taking command. This is a, I'm not leaving it to your first officer. And secondly, I'm going to kill that thing. Right. He's Ahab. He is Captain Ahab. Yeah. And this is where, where uh, first of all, that planet killer looks like a big white whale. Sure. Yeah. It is absolutely Moby Dick. Yeah. Um, but you see the wheel spinning in Decker's head how he's going to maneuver taking command of the Enterprise. Yeah, he slowly slides into mm, it with a yep. couple questions, and yeah, that's great. But all, so much drama in this episode. You've got the planet killer that sits out there, which is dramatic alone. You've got Kirk and Scotty in the landing party stuck on the Constellation, which they can no longer uh, reach because the transporter is out. Uh, that The planet killer is now attacking the Enterprise. And on top of that, you are going to have a power play between two officers who should be working together, yeah. but they are not. And the fact that Spock answers him. Right. You know what I mean? Because superior, superior officer. Ask me a question. Yeah. If Spock behaved differently, I don't know that Decker would have actually taken over because he expects Spock to do what he wants him to do, which is Spock has kind of figured out, oh, the planet killer is ignoring us now. It's probably because of our distance. So we'll maintain a discreet distance and circle back to pick up the captain. And Decker says, You can't let that thing reach Rigel. Why, millions of innocent people would die. I am aware of the Rigel system's population, Commodore, but we are only one ship. Our deflector shields are strained. Our subspace transmitter is useless. Logically, our primary duty is to survive in order to warn Starfleet Command. So I just want to point out what decision Spock has just made. Because he doesn't know there's any way to destroy the planet killer, right? So the decision he has made is to let millions of people die. Yes. Or it's a, it's, it's, it's a gambit to say, we need more than just us. We've got to get Starfleet in on this. We've, sure. We've got to mobilize people. But yes, that, that could mean the end of Rigel. Well, I think the implication is there's not time to do both. Right. Well, the, the implication is that the Enterprise is clearly outmatched. Uh, uh, there's no way that the Enterprise can stand... Can stand Definitely, up to hundred percent. Right. Okay, so so logically, we we gotta we gotta well, warn Rigel. We gotta we gotta get more. We gotta get Starfleet involved. Bring more starships here to try and combat the the planet killer. But what I was going to ask you, Steve, yeah. is that since Spock's first command of the Galileo Seven, where he he made a lot of bad decisions based on logic, and he finally made a good one based on emotion. So since then, when he has been in command, he see he I feel like he he learned a lot from the experience on the Galileo 7 when he see him in command and like the Squire Gothos. And from being in proximity to Kirk. Uh, well, for sure. Absolutely. Uh, but also in, uh, you know, Who Mourns for Adonais, Spock is very confident when he is in command while Kirk is on the uh, Apollo's planet. But now Spock is in command, but now he is he's in a power struggle with Commodore who is exerting his command of authority over, over Spock. So do you think that that Spock before before you know Ahab takes command, do you agree with his command decision to sort of get ahead of the planet killer and go to Rigel and warn the planet? Well, I don't think he's going to Rigel and warning the planet. I, I think he's saying Rigel's gonna die. I gotta get Starfleet. Yeah. Right, I agree. right, right. Um and so I think he is absolutely making the right choice based on the the information that he has and i think it is a very cold-hearted choice absolutely but that is you know that's what he's there is he knows there is literally nothing we can do to stop this thing right now and decker 
is like, we got to go get him. And I love the moment where Decker is pushing him, but not taking over. You know, he's saying, he's encouraging him, you got to do this. And there are looks from everyone, and then Spock says, Sulu, you will lay in an evasive course back to the Constellation. Aye, aye, sir. And we hear, Belay that last order, Helmsman. That is a great dramatic moment. Yeah. 180 degree turn, hard about. We're going to attack. And everyone on the bridge looks at him like, oh boy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because they're in for a ride now. And we will carry out my last order, Mr. Sulu. There's so much tension. Yeah. There's so much drama going on in this episode. And this is like sort of icing on the cake of what makes this episode work so very well. Oh, yeah. And every person on that bridge is thinking, go get Kirk. Oh, my God. Go get Kirk. Yeah. You know, there's that moment in Star Trek, the motion picture, where where this alien ensign or lieutenant on the bridge says, what do you mean Kirk's here? What about... What about Matt Decker? Matt Decker. Who I guess we'll get into in a second. But, uh-huh. but, you know, what about Captain Decker? He's been here every step of the way. And Uhura turns to him and says, our odds of coming back from this mission may have just doubled. And that is, by the way, that is from the uh, the bonus scenes yeah. that we got yeah, in Star Trek Motion the, Picture, the, yeah. aired on ABC TV for the yeah, first time. And it's time. a great line. Yeah, yeah. They have just doubled. And I think everyone on that bridge is thinking that. <laughs> <you> <laughs> yeah. <know? laughs> well, except, I mean, we don't know what Decker's reputation is. Yeah. Like, he, he might have a great reputation, too. And... The difference between the Decker that woke up and was really messed up and this guy on the bridge is a long way. True. And the, and the, the, but they're stuck with the guy who woke up on the bridge right now. Well, this yeah. is the thing. The, the, the problem with being paranoid and crazy is that you don't know you're paranoid and crazy. Right. And the fact is, this thing does destroy planets. It is a really, really big deal. And Spock is resisting. Uh, by the way, William Wyndham, up to this point, he was standing behind Spock. He steps down and stands next to Spock in his command chair. And he takes a breath. Yeah. He's like... I'm pulling rank. Yeah. Mr. Spock, I am officially notifying you that I am exercising my option under regulations as a Starfleet Commodore and that I am assuming command of the Enterprise. I love that Spock says, you have the right to do so, but I would advise against it. That thing must be destroyed. You tried to destroy it once before, Commodore. The result was a wrecked ship and a dead crew. Those beats of silence that happen right after Spock says that is just so laced with drama. It's really brutal. Yeah. Yeah. And but it's the brutal truth. Absolutely. Just Decker looking at him and absorbing that and thinking. I'm going to make it right this time. Yeah. I'm going to, you know, he's yeah, just... Yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to, I know where I went wrong. I'm going to make it but right But it's this so time. uncomfortable. And, and it's such a great bit of silence. But after all this back and forth between Decker and Spock, Decker finally says, Mr. Spock, that will be all. You have been relieved of command. Don't force me to relieve you of duty as well. And that great score. <laughs> Spock stands up out of the chair and McCoy's, he, he kind of bristles and he, he's moving like, you got to be kidding me. Yeah, you can't do the Spock. Yeah. Spock quotes the regulations, and McCoy says, To blazes with regulations. You can't let him take command when you know he's wrong. And I'll tell you what I think about the episode we just did is a mock time. And in a mock time, we really talked about how that solidified these friendships. And in particular, it is the most openly they name the friendship between Spock and McCoy. And so I think this coming right after that is he is 100% on Team Spock in this moment. If you can certify Commodore Decker medically or psychologically unfit for command, I can relieve him under Section C. 
I'll certify that right now. That's a great moment. We'll also be asked to produce your medical records to prove it. Now, you know I haven't had time to run an examination on him. But what's interesting is after Decker relieves Spock, but he's still the science officer, Mm -hmm. Spock doesn't go back to a science station. He's just standing there with his arms behind his back, like, at attention. Like, why doesn't he, you know? And the fact that McCoy says to him the same thing Kirk will say to him, but it has a completely different right. has a completely different effect later on. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I love when, it, when, it, when, it's, when Kirk says it. Hard about, Helmsman. Course, 32 degrees mark 10, ready on main phaser banks. William Wyndham actually brought an interesting trait to his character. He's sitting in the command chair, and he's taking the data cartridges and he's kind of fiddling them in his hand, sitting back, you know, more in a more relaxed, he like he doesn't care. I'm a command now. And so anyway, so he was trying to pay a tribute to Humphrey Bogart in uh, the movie The Cane Mutiny. Captain Quig did the same thing with the ball bearings. He was yeah. like fiddling around with them in his hand. Yeah. That's very interesting. You know what I was thinking about is like do, he's doing Kirk Swagger, basically, but we know it's empty. You know what I mean? Because he's using it to cover up what all the pain that's inside. Yeah, but it's a different kind of swagger. Kirk would not sit back, you know, kind of hunch back in his chair and you know fiddle around with the, the the cassette cartridges. You know, he he would be sitting upright at attention. You know, well, like but think about his uh, back arched. Think about the Corbomite maneuver when he's saying, you know, our life means little to us. If it means as little to you, he is sitting back and going with that sort of putting on that kind of show. That's a bluff. So's this. Uh, this is not a bluff. Well, what he's doing isn't a bluff, but him showing to the rest of the crew that he's got it all in control is BS. He's putting on an attitude, just like Kirk is putting on an attitude, that isn't actually real. But what Decker is doing, he is pulling rank to take command of the Enterprise. Yes, uh, that true. That is not a bluff. It's oh, happened. Oh, agreed. I totally agree. You know, like, like you know, Kirk's whole thing with the Corbomite maneuver, like even when no, Baylock no, I, says, I, I agree. hey, you know, let's see demonstration, he goes, ah, you know. Uh, but him trying to settle in, yeah, that's that's the bluff. Exactly, him trying the, the to tone. The, yeah, right. exactly. The, that's the, putting on this air of kind of you know swagger. That's that that's I the agree bluff. with. Yeah. Yes, I, I'm with you there. Um, Kirk is doing some welding or something, and this is Kirk and Scotty just totally, totally in sync in a great scene. The impulse engines control circuits are fused solid. What about the warp drive control circuits? All right, we can cross-connect the controls, but it'll make the ship almost impossible for one man to handle. Worry about your miracles, Scotty. I'll worry about mine. Get to work. Aye, sir. So here's the interesting thing about that scene. So, so, so many times on Enterprise incidents, we've established this, this equality of intelligence in some ways more that Kirk and Spock have. But now we're seeing an equality of intelligence between Kirk and Scotty. He's the one who says, what about the war drive control circuits? And Scotty goes, oh, yeah, I can't cross-connect the controls. Yeah, he's right there with Kirk. Yeah, I know what you're going for. There's so much to Kirk. There's so many reasons why he just was the best captain in Starfleet. And just working on the control panel. You know, Mm -hmm. he's under this thing, and he's... You know, he's, he's, using, all. he's using the laser beacon from Squire of Gotha. Yes, that's right. <laughs> that's um, right, yeah, yeah. W- w- one thing I've heard about uh, James Cameron, particularly when he was doing Aliens, is he had such a background in special effects and all this stuff that he knew everything technically on the set. And so there can, and it's uh, British Union crews on the set, and they're going, oh, we can't do that. He's like, yeah, you can. You just take this off of here, and you put that on here, and you move that in. And they go, 
because they didn't like him at first. And then they go, oh, man, this guy really knows his stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, and kind of earned his respect. Uh, the Enterprise is closing in on the Planet Eater. I like that Spock says, Deflector shields at full power. They can't take much more of this. When nothing is happening. Yeah, I have a note there. And I'm, is he talking about the fact that they can't take much more of being at full power for this long? Or do you think that the Enterprise was hit in, in some line that yeah, was dropped. I, I, I think it's referring to the Enterprise being hit, but it's it's it doesn't it's misplaced right yeah. here. It yeah. doesn't quite make sense. We must retreat, Commodore. The energy drain. I'm in command here, Mr. Spock. Maintain your course, Helmsman. So while the Enterprise is in combat with the planet killer, the original effects, which I think hold up great, really look awesome. But, you know, there's basically the same couple of shots of the Enterprise firing its phasers on the planet killer. Okay, talk about the mother load to reimagine that scene. Uh, what went behind some of the decisions that y'all made with uh, the Enterprise firing on the planet killer? For me, it didn't quite come out the way I had thought it would come out. It's a great sequence. And the Enterprise firing and the, and the, the lights playing on the Enterprise when it fires the blue phasers and... Uh, and that was one of the decisions we had to make is standardizing the color of phase, the ship's phases right. to blue because it's changed season to season from red to blue. And so we decided blue. But what, you know, what I had envisioned, and it, it, again, it's a, it was simply a matter of time. This, the, the Neil Ray and the folks at CBS Digital were nothing but amazing and, and really, really uh, went overboard with what was scoped versus what we asked them to do. So I have no complaints. But, you know, the... Where the phasers impact the doomsday machine, it's just kind of like this ball of, of energy. And I, I wanted to see it kind of play about the surface a little more. Yeah. So you get this kind of feeling That's that I would think too. Yeah, that yeah. it's not really doing anything. And I maybe see it crackle or see some kind of energy. Or dis- that it dissipates in some way. Exactly. Yeah. So it heats up and then dissipates or something leaves a trail, oh, oh. but then the trail is just dissipating as it as the phasers go. But there just wasn't time to do it. But uh uh, there's some great shots. I mean, there's a scene where we're behind the Enterprise and it's firing its phasers, and you can see the length of the Doomsday Machine, mm. and it looks like it's miles long. Yeah, it does. Which is really cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Just nonstop. Commodore, I urgently recommend immediate withdrawal. Recommendation noted. Maintain course. Fire! What I was thinking about at this point is uh, the famous quote from Napoleon, which is, you know, in his rules of strategy, one of the most important of Napoleon's rules of strategy is never reinforce failure. And that is exactly what Decker is doing right now. He's failed repeatedly to do a thing, and he goes, I just have to do that same thing more, and it will succeed. It's also the literal AA definition of insanity, to repeat the same action and expect different results. Yeah, there's there's also a weird moment where Lieutenant Palmer is standing up be- behind Decker, and she's holding her ears. There must have been a scene cut. Mm. Uh, if you go back and look at it, she's holding her her ears on both sides of her head like she just got knocked around or something. So there must be a scene there, and it probably ties into the the shields oh, the can't sh- take much yeah. more of this. Um, Scott, there's a question I've been meaning to ask you, and I haven't asked this whole time. I think yes. Is there a name for the ear thingy? Is there a name for the ear thing that's in Palmer's head? And, and what, Spock has it at some Spock point. Spock has it in his ear, and Uhura has it. You know what? It's in the Franz Joseph uh, technical manual book, but I don't remember what they call it. Oh, but it does have a name. Yeah. It's not the earpiece. Yeah, it, it, it's, it might be it's, I, I, ear transceiver, maybe. 
Oh, interesting. Something like that. AirPod Pro. I don't. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you have Kirk and Scotty and Washburn. You know, they're all in the constellation trying to get whatever power they can get going. But Kirk has no idea what's going on. Right. So then he finally establishes the view screen. Try it now, Captain. And when he sees the Enterprise engaging with the planet killer. What the hell's going on? I love the visual effects because you see the giant planet killer and you see this little tiny little Starship Enterprise flying around trying to get out of its way uh, and firing on the planet killer. And I'm like, God, that looks so cool. Yeah, yeah. That was a t- it was tough to, you know, because obviously Decker says it has a maw big enough to swallow a do- dozens of starships. So playing with that, and that was tough because you also have a shuttlecraft going in later. Right. And yeah, you got to yeah. be able to see it. Right, you That's want to you, you want to be able to mm. see you know otherwise the shuttlecraft would have looked like a, a speck of dust kind of going into that <laughs> thing. So, so you have to we had to play with that a little bit. But, That's uh, a suspension of disbelief. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> Scotty, where's that power coming, sir? If I push these impulse engines too hard in the condition they're in, they'll blow apart. Push it right to the edge. This ship has got to maneuver. Aye, sir. And the Enterprise is taking a beating, and then we hear it has ceased fire. We're being held in a tractor beam. And Commodore, this is Ahab. Maintain phaser fire, Helmsman. And Spock lays it out. We have lost warp power. If we don't break the tractor beam within 60 seconds, we never will. But don't you understand? We've got to destroy it. And Spock says, and I love this moment. That, sir, is illogical. It is suicide. Attempted suicide would be proof that you are psychologically unfit for command. If you don't veer off, I shall relieve you on that basis. And then there's a beat... And finally, Decker says, they're off. You, you know, it just occurred to me that that is very much like this. And what's so crazy about it is this movie has t- multiple Star Trek references, and that is Crimson Tide. Oh, absolutely. Is Denzel Washington and Gene Hackman have different ideas of what they should do. Gene Hackman wants to attack. And there are tons of Star Trek references because when Quentin Tarantino came in to do an uncredited rewrite, he added all those, all uh-huh. the, all the Scotty stuff. We need warp power now. That, yeah. and by the way, when I was watching Crimson Tide for the first time, that came out in 1995. I saw that movie with my cousin who was out visiting from uh, New Jersey, and you know, she she knew me since I was born, and so like that, that that scene happens where Scotty, uh, where, where Scotty, where Denzel Washington is talking to the guy. He says, "You're you're you're Scotty now, and this is the Enterprise, and Kirk needs more power." You know, my, my cousin's like, you know, squeezing my shoulders, like, "Oh my God, this is your movie!" Yeah. You know, whenever that happens in a movie or a TV show, whenever there's a reference, you're like, "Yes!" Oh my God, the new movie Belfast, directed by uh, Kenneth Branagh. Mm. Uh, there's a scene where, so it's about his childhood growing up in Northern Ireland in 1969, and the, the young boy in the film is loosely based on him. And there's, there's a moment in the film where you see the family watching TV, and you, before you see what they're watching, you hear, these are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. Oh. That's great. And then it cuts to the screen, and you're seeing the kids watching Star Trek. And I went, oh, my God! Yeah, fantastic. <laughs> I love awesome. when that happens. And so, yes, Decker finally gives in and says, veer off. But it's too late. We can't break loose. We need more power. We haven't got it. We're being pulled inside. Did you notice Decker at that moment? So it's the exchanges between Spock and Sulu. Right. Decker's crumpled. He's in the captain's chair and he just leans over to the side and he just is, I'm not quite sure what the, well, again, was it that I, he was just, he's defeated there? Is he giving up? I'm, I'm not quite sure well, what again, that interpretation I, I, is. I think about his journey, which is that his crew's dead. It's his fault. He gets a chance to redeem himself. And in his attempt to redeem himself and take revenge on the thing that killed his crew, 
he might have just killed a whole other ship. Yeah. Mm. I mean, that moment is... Yeah. That's a lot. And that, of course, is the end of Act 2. Act 3, Kirk is watching powerless. And I think about, you know, I think about Never Give You Up and all these moments where Kirk has expressed his love of the Enterprise, that it's his love of the Enterprise that got him to free himself from the spores and everything else. And now he is hopelessly watching the thing he loves most in the universe about to be destroyed. Slowly and inexorably yeah. being drawn in. It's great. Scotty, give me that power. You've got it, Captain. Just enough to move us. I can do better. That'll do. Scotty was right. It is kind of hard to drive this thing. <laughs> <laughs> but they got it going. Mm-hmm. And and I love I love in the new visual effects when you see the the constellation like the power build up, you see the impulse engines come you know, on. Fire up a little yeah, bit. Yeah, that's very cool. Yeah, I love the sound mix. I love the sound of those engines. That And they're moving closer, and Scotty says, Captain, I still don't know what we're doing. We're moving. The Enterprise isn't. Maybe that thing will see us. Let the Enterprise go. And then just offhandedly, Kirk says, Well, we had some phasers. Phasers? You've got them. I have one bank recharged. And Kirk then throws out a line that, again, talks about the money. Yes, right. How does right. The, that's a good right? point? You, you just, just earned, earned your, your pay, pay for, for the, the week. week. Yeah. <laughs> this, by the way, this moment to me, this is the actual first true miracle worker moment, because out of nowhere, Scotty has just happened to do the thing that Kirk needs most without being asked. Yeah, and the open fire, and the Enterprise gets loose. Well, loose, Commodore. Good boy, Jim. When the two of us will kill that thing. But then Kirk says, Mr. Scott, it worked. Great. But then the planet killer turns towards the <laughs> constellation. And I love that camera zoom. I think it's great. Scotty, get us out of here. Right. <laughs> That's a great moment. A nice moment of levity. Levity, there. yep. Commodore, I suggest Kirk pulled us out of there by distracting it. Now it's our turn. Fire phasers. And what's what's so terrible, I think, is that, you know, we had this moment, I, I believe, where Decker realized he doomed a second ship. And now he's back. He says, yep, he's he right says back. we're going to destroy it. Now we got two ships. We can destroy it between yeah, the two of us. Good boy, Jim. Yeah, yeah now yeah. Well, t- between the two of us, we'll kill that thing. Illogical. We cannot destroy it. Therefore, we cannot save Rigel. And just as Spock is trying to reason with Decker through logic, we hear from Lieutenant Palmer that communications have been reestablished. Enterprise, come in. Mr. Spock, I am still in command, and I will speak for this ship. Enterprise to Kirk. Commodore Decker speaking. Matt, what's going on? Give me Mr. Spock. I'm in command here, Jim. Because your first officer was reluctant to take aggressive action against that thing. I mean, you're the lunatic who's responsible for almost destroying my ship? You are speaking to a senior officer, Kirk. I love Shatner throughout this whole thing. Because he's just like, I don't care. I told you, I am in command here, according to every rule in the book, Captain. If you have anything to say at all, you will say it to me. There's only one thing I want to say to you, Commodore. Get my ship out of there. And again, I, all all the little details are so great because he says, Mr. Spock, ship status. And Spock looks at Decker and says, Commodore. And I love that Decker, frustrated, points down to the console on the chair to have him come down and report to Down her. here. Yeah, he's like, he's like irritated. And it's a very kind of Captain Queeg moment from Kane Mutiny. Totally. You know, it's very, it's, it's it, that moment where he's just... Down here. Yeah. I'm the yeah. boss. Yeah, Down right. here. Yeah. Well, it's both that, but it's also a defeat. It's like, uh, fine. Yeah, sure. You give the report. He gives the report, says what's going on. And Kirk, 
gives an order to Sulu. Take evasive action, Mr. Sulu. I told you I am in command here, and I will give the orders, Captain. We are going to turn and attack. And Kirk comes right back. Not with my ship, you don't. Mr. Spock, relieve Commodore Decker immediately. That's a direct order. You can't relieve me, and you know it. According to regulations... Blast regulations. Mr. Spock, I order you to assume command on my personal authority as captain of the Enterprise. Which, by the way, he doesn't have that. There's no, no such thing. No, what he's, <laughs> what he's really saying is, Spock, disregard regulations, disregard your training, disregard the discipline of the service... And take over. Right, right. right. I don't do, care about regulations. You're taking over, and that's you're going to mutiny. And that's what he's telling exactly them to do. Exactly what it is, and it's two things. I think one is I'm your friend. You trust me. I trust you. This is what has to happen. Mm-hmm. Do it for me. And the second thing is do what's right. Yeah, you know, you know that this is the right thing. And to do. by me telling you that I'm asking you to do this on my personal authority as captain of the Enterprise, you're in a hard place. But I'll take the I'll heat take for the it. Heat. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And he says without really hesitation. Commodore Decker, you are relieved of command. The music cue here is so great, and I love the direction that Decker leans from one side of the big chair to the other side. The camera pans with him, moving him out. He's in the frame with Spock, and then he moves out of the frame, just isolating himself with a physical move when he says, I don't recognize your authority to relieve me. It's awesome. It's a great moment. And the way he says it, like this like snide way, like I, I dare you. Yeah, right. Yeah. I dare you. Yeah, I love Spock's response. It's great. You may file a formal protest with Starfleet Command, assuming we survive to reach a star base. But you are relieved. Commodore, I do not wish to place you under arrest. You wouldn't dare. And he calls the security guards up. You're bluffing. Vulcans never bluff. I love there's a pause and a long look at Spock, and then he says, No. No, I don't suppose that they do. Uh, By the way, this whole Vulcans don't lie, Vulcans don't bluff, that stuff is played forever, and we see Spock lying and bluffing all the time. Constantly. (laughs) But I love that it still works. Mm -hmm. It still works, right. Well, you know. He doesn't lie. He exaggerates. That, exactly. And, yeah. And that <laughs> moment where Kirk tells him that is just one of my favorite Kirk moments. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's just like, you have to do what's right here. Yeah. You know, just do it, Spock. Right. Yeah. Just, just do it. Do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Totally. Captain, I have assumed command. And Spock even turns to Decker, who's leaving, and says, Commodore, I believe you're scheduled for a medical examination. And he sends security with him. Mr. Montgomery. Yep. Mr. Montgomery, who actually has a speaking line, that is Jerry Ketron. And we're down with Decker, who comes out of the turbo lift, and he pulls the full Kirk. It's the full Kirk, which is he's walking forward. He coughs, makes enough of a distraction to attack the security guard. Okay, so here you have this episode with all this drama, all these space battles. Now you get into a hand-to-hand combat. Get into a fight scene which on the Enterprise. Which is a pretty good one, I think. It is. I think and it's the, a good one. And the stunt people are good. Yeah. It, it, it is a good one. This uh, uh, Jerry Catron, who played Montgomery, held his own pretty good for a little while. Like, you know, it's good to see a security, some, someone who's not Captain Kirk, uh, get yeah. into a good fight, you know? And the stuntman, the stuntman playing um, um, Montgomery. Decker. 
no, Decker. Oh, Decker is yeah. also really good. You don't. Yeah, it's not a horrible one at all. Yeah, no. you don't. It doesn't take you out of it like so many of these do, where you go, "Well, that's not Decker." Oh, like I mean, they, they actually. It, it, yeah, it's <laughs> yeah. it's actually pretty seamless as, as far as that goes, unless you're really looking. And Decker wins the fight, drags him through a door, climbs down a ladder. He's got a phaser, and we see him sneakily go down the corridor and past the sign that says "Shuttlecraft Hangar Deck." Here's another case where they spent money to have three extras walk into an elevator just so that Decker could peek mm. around a corner, yeah. you know, and then kind of go. But they didn't have to do that. They could have just showed him walking, sneaking yep. past the shuttle bay sign. But they, you know, they took this time and paid that money. Well, because because by this point, they were still able to to show that the Enterprise had 430 people on it. Right, exactly. Uh, by, the, by the third season, you would swear that Kirk's, Baca, McCoy, and Scotty were the, yeah, only, were the only ones on the Enterprise. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and back on the Constellation, we're talking about where to rendezvous and our power levels, and then we see the shuttle bay and the shuttle taking off. Mr. Spock, someone's opening the shuttlecraft bay doors. Shut them, Mr. Sulu. It's too late, sir. It's always too late. It's always when, whenever they late. do that, whenever they say that somebody's opening the shuttle bay, close them. Sorry, too late. Uh, well, I always picture like if they're closing, like catch the shuttle yeah, in between the door. Yeah. So oh, my question yeah. for you is: Okay, so the Galileo is you know back on Tarsus four, uh, yeah. or or was it burned up? What shuttle is this? Um, I don't know. Now this is it because normally, like after the Galileo seven, every time you saw. Anything with the shuttlecraft, they just reused the footage that was shot for the sure. Galileo Seven. But I just like that you actually see the shuttlecraft actually exit. I don't know if we call it bay. Galileo Two. I don't know if we, I don't know what markings we put on the side. I mean, there might be a chance. You know, the 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 shuttle sequence in the remastered version. You know, one of my notes was this guy is he's stealing something, so he's under a time crunch. He's frantic and he's about to do something that's really crazy. So when I don't. I don't think we should do the normal thing where the shuttle turns mm. and faces the thing, and then it takes off. I think mid-turn it should lift off mm. and it should be a little erratic. Wo- yeah, wobbly. A little bit wobbly. Because first of all, this guy's obviously a, a a ship captain and a pilot. I'm sure, so he knows how to use these things. I mean, he flies through as the doors are still opening. The doors are still open. You know, yeah. so I wanted to get that sense of urgency and mm. franticness. So mm. that's why the shuttle kind of takes off. Yeah, I love it. Off. Yeah, this great. is something I've been thinking about as we've been talking this whole episode about the special effects. Like most Star Trek episodes, the effects are establishing place. You know, the Enterprise is moving through space. It is orbiting this planet. It is, and we see where it is. In this episode, the special effects are telling the story. Yeah. And, and the examples you've given of the asteroid hitting the constellation, of the way the shuttlecraft takes off, these are elements of actually telling the story, not yeah. just telling us where we are. You know? Yeah. One of the things we wanted to make sure we didn't do was make the special effects so flashy that it took right. you out of what the story was. And that's where these decisions came in that, you know, this can help tell the story. Yeah. I, I, I love that, you know, Kirk calls and says, why are you lynching a shuttlecraft? And then we're calling to the shuttlecraft. The choice to have the camera pushing in behind Decker and moving. Of course, we know it's him, but that is just makes the whole situation so dramatic. Shuttlecraft to Enterprise. Decker here. And there's reactions. Commodore, I must insist that you return to the ship. And what's interesting about where Decker has gone is I think he has accepted that Spock was right and that he was wrong. You said it yourself, Spock. There is no way to blast through the hull of that machine, so I'm going to take this thing right down its throat. We're not 
showing that Decker is completely suicidal. He's willing to sacrifice himself right. because he feels like he has nothing to lose because he's lost everything. But this is his way to do a little bit of damage, to do something, something that actually gives Kirk a great idea. But it's not like he's just blatantly out to kill himself. And, and originally, in, in the earlier versions of the story, Decker survives mm. and realizes that he made a big mistake taking command of the Enterprise, putting everyone through all this, and he resigns his commission. But Kuhn said he should, he should die. And by doing that, by tipping Kirk off with this idea, that's where this episode is taken to another level. Yeah, and also later on in Star Trek The Motion Picture, when we meet um, Will Decker, Will Decker, you realize that now, looking back on it, in this moment, Matt Decker is also sacrificing a father to some 12-year-old kid somewhere. Yeah. Well, has it ever been established that Will Decker, played by Stephen Collins in Star Trek The Motion Picture, is in fact Matt Decker's son? That's what I've always Yeah, that's how heard. I always read it. Okay, well, in when Gene Roddenberry wrote the novelization for Star Trek: The Motion Picture, he wrote that uh, that it is absolutely his son. There is a, a right. little one sentence in there that you know he was the son right. of of Matt Decker. So Roddenberry Roddenberry himself wrote it in the novelization for Star Trek: The Motion Picture, but also in the the, the writing of the Star Trek Phase Two series which never got off the ground because it turned into Star Trek, the motion picture, the character of Will Decker was established as the son of yeah. Matt Decker. Yeah. So, so, so all these, all these ways around like actual, you know, uh, it's established as canon because it's been accepted as canon, but, but just not in the motion picture. Like it would have been great if there was a line in yeah. Star Trek, the motion picture yeah. of my father, you know? Yeah. But um, that makes this moment where Matt Decker's, driving this thing into the doomsday machine is uh, it's really uh, even more sad. I, I, I agree. I think in terms of motion picture and obviously we won't spend much time talking about it, but I think that is a bit of trivia without a point, which is that it's really interesting to us as Star Trek fans, right. but it has literally no effect in the motion picture. It doesn't define his character in any way. Yep, it would be right. so much more interesting if the, if he had something to prove because of what happened to his dad, or right. th that the loss of his father affected him in this way, and that affected his behavior. Right. Then it would be super interesting. But it's but what's it's just an Easter egg. Uh, it's yeah, an Easter egg. Yeah. It's, it's a great Easter egg. But yeah. what's what is interesting in the, in the connecting them is how Matt Decker in in the Doomsday Machine sacrifices himself to defeat a machine, and in his own different way, Will Decker sacrifices Does himself the same thing. for. The, to defeat, in some ways, a vast machine that poses a massive threat. Well, yeah. and they're both unstoppable machines that are coming through our galaxy, heading towards population. Absolutely, right. absolutely. Those mm -hmm. connections are totally there. This moment of because what is Matt Decker doing, and how much of it is an attempt to attack the creature or the the planet killer, and how much of it is suicide, out of shame and regret and guilt. Is impossible to pull apart, I think. And I think that's all in there, you know. I agree. Well, let's say, you know, you're in Matt Decker's head and you're thinking, well, what if we actually do de defeat the doomsday machine? What what happens to me now? I'm yeah. going to, uh, you know, get court-martialed and all this stuff. Like, there's, this is his only way out. This is his only way to find some kind of vindication, some kind of redemption, regardless of whether it will work. But 
uh, he's, well, he's got nothing to live for. It's survivor's guilt. Mm, survivor's guilt. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think there was this one moment where he thought, maybe if I can kill it with the Enterprise, then, then I won't feel so terrible. And then that's not going to happen. I love this line. Is Kirk says, Matt, you'll be killed. And he says, I've been prepared for death ever since I, ever since I killed my crew. He doesn't say my crew died. He says, I killed my crew. Right, right. Because that is how he feels. Yep. The commander is responsible for the lives of his crew and for their deaths. Well, I should have died with mine. And his performance heading into that, what's so interesting about it is there's actually not a lot of times where we watch someone who has decided to die right in the moments of their death. And wow. that is what we see here. And, yeah. and and Kirk is trying to appeal to Decker. And right before Decker turns off, right before he turns off his, his uh, communicator, Kirk says the line, We're stronger with you than without you. I think Decker actually turns off he communications. He turns it off before that before line. That line. Oh, he, so never he, never heard the li- he never heard the line. Yeah, because yeah. it's a great line. Because maybe he, he might have, maybe he might have changed his mind after he heard that kind of logic, but I doubt it. Yeah, there's so much uh, conviction in Kirk's voice when he says it. You yeah, know, we're, we're stronger, stronger with, with you, you than without, without you. Yeah. And only Shatner could say it that yeah. way. Yeah. So, so you know how I said at the beginning that if the transporters didn't go down, then Rigel would be destroyed? Yes. If Decker hadn't beamed his crew to the planet where they were all killed, Rigel would be destroyed. Because he wouldn't have the guilt... Right. That leads him to drive the shuttlecraft into the planet killer. So what you're saying is just like Kirk, nothing that Kirk could have done to save the Farragut in obsession. Yes. Is what's happening now with with Decker. And only in this case, Decker is too far gone to have that epiphany that there was like I, I didn't do anything wrong here. This is not my fault. Uh, this is why. Okay, the top of the conversation, we were talking. What if what if Kirk was the one in command of the constellation? What if all this had happened to the Enterprise? How would this all have affected Kirk? Would he have gone down that that the path of despair that uh, where the, from which there is no return for Decker? But I think by trying to connect Decker's grief in the doomsday machine to Kirk's grief and in, in obsession, we, we see a glimpse that Kirk would have actually handled the post attack by the planet killer on the enterprise differently. If that had happened to the enterprise, you know, there's the expression that I, I, I don't particularly like, but you know, God never gives you more than you can handle. Right. Um, and I, it bothers me besides the fact that I'm an atheist, but it also sort of like, well, what does that mean? How is this useful to me? But, 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 <laughs> What we've seen based on uh, Kirk so far, so far there's been nothing he couldn't handle. And he's had to handle some really, really heavy, difficult stuff. And so I tend to agree that between Kodos the Executioner and the Farragut and a whole bunch of other stuff. In between. Um, yeah, and, and including um, uh, Edith Keeler, like, and the death of his family in o- Operation Annihilate. Like, I tend to agree I don't think Kirk would have ended up like Decker. I agree with you. As, yeah. as, as bad as it would have been, I don't think he would end up here. Yeah, because, I agree. Because also what you're, what, what, you know, and I never thought about this until at this moment with the conversation, but so the Doomsday Machine, Decker is Ahab. In Obsession, Kirk is Ahab. Yeah. 
but they're in, in obsession. Kirk is not. He's not that f- as nearly as far down the rabbit hole right. as Decker is. Right. He's not Khan. He's not Khan. Yeah. Well, yeah. he hasn't, but, and he hasn't experienced what Decker experienced. I mean, he he made a mistake, but he didn't kill. I mean, like the the he didn't beam his crew down to, and watch them all die. That's a, right. 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 Well, Some crew members his captain and the Farragut died, well, but it wasn't and, and, like this. And it's why I love obsession, and it's why like he learns that le- he has to let go of the thing, and that's not what Decker is capable of doing. And the music build and the effects build and his performance as he flies into the mouth of that thing and dies is just... At the, the way the music builds to that just, just that crescendo. And then it's all, it's done. Spock says, He's gone. In the remastered version of the Doomsday Machine, the last shot at the end of Act 3 is on the mouth of the planet killer with this, like, flame coming out. It's yeah. almost like a, looks like a flame. It's living. It's, I mean, it's not living like a sentient being, right. but... You feel like it's evil. You feel yeah. it's... Yeah, yeah, you really do. Act 4, the first thing that happens is Spock offers his condolences. Sir, may I offer my condolences on the death of your friend? His most regrettable... It's regrettable that he died for nothing. And then right at the moment that we hear that he died for nothing, Sulu reports a power drop. Sulu. Thank goodness Sulu had the wherewithal to... Keep an eye on the sensors. To see that there was a power drop. And with that note, he gets this idea. And Spock, we're ready to beam you back. Wait a minute. says, hang on, not so fast. I have an idea, Mister yeah. Spock. It's like that's my opening. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's that's the piece of in that's Kirk the Observer. Yep, right, absolutely. Yeah. Well, and what I love too is I love again the way they they could write it, where he says, "Hey, Spock, I have this idea. I want to set up a delayed detonation, and you guys are going to beat me off in this," which is exactly what he's going to do. But that wouldn't be the dramatic way to do it. Right. The dramatic way to do it is he says, "I'm going to stay," and Spock, who's locked into the initial plan of we got to go warn Starfleet, says, "Captain." There is little to be gained by staying aboard the Constellation. Except possibly the destruction of that thing out there. And Kirk at that moment, he doesn't ask Spock how much of an explosion would be caused by the uh, detonation of a, of a starship. He knows. Of course he knows. He already knows the answer. He's just off by a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, Spock corrects him. Right. Well, and he might have just rounded, rounded up. Yeah, you know he rounded I mean? it right. up, right. Will it be powerful enough to destroy that thing out there? Negative, Captain. Its hull is pure neutronium. There is no known way of blasting through it. Not through it, Spock. From inside it. Inside of it. Within yeah. it. And he asks Scotty to set the ship's impulse engines to overload. And he says, Aye, the shape that thing's in, it's hard to keep it from blowing. I want you to rig a 30-second delay detonation device and rig it so that it can be blown from up here. Which Scotty does, by the way. <laughs> and Spock says, uh, Captain, you're getting dangerously close to the planet killer. I intend to get a lot closer. I'm going to ram her right down that thing's throat. And then Spock addresses his captain. You'll be killed, just like Decker. Do you think that he uses Jim in that moment because of his concern for Kirk's plan? Or do you think it's because he's considering Kirk's emotional state after just seeing what Decker just did? I think it's the first. I think it's concern for his plan... And I think it's an expression of deep friendship. Yeah. He's saying, please don't, you know, don't, you'll, you'll be killed. Yeah. Uh, but I, I do think there is something to, to the idea, the prospect that maybe he is worried a little. There's something to it 
that he's he's wants to make sure that Kirk is not is not going down that hole that that Decker went down. Of course, Kirk's crew is still alive; his ship is still intact. Right. So he's not quite there, but I think there's a lot to it. I think that's an excellent point. Yeah. Well, and the plan is that he's going to hit the detonation button, and then they have 30 seconds to beam him off. But I would say, if the if the transporter weren't working, Kirk would still do the same thing. He would absolutely sacrifice himself to destroy this thing. Oh yeah, if that I was think what, if I, that's what was necessary. I think so too. And um, I also got to say, I love neutronium. <laughs> I just always loved that 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 uh, the idea that it's, it's you know my son and I have arguments over what's stronger neutronium or adamantium, you know? <laughs> um, and well, it turns out it turns out uh, neutronium is a was a word coined before it's a, a fictitious thing, but it was by a scientist named Andreas von Antropov hmm. in 1926, and the idea is that there are there are no electrons or protons around something and it's just this just incredibly the... dense material hmm. and he theorized that it would be the first element on a periodic table because it would be an element that has no electrons or, or protons. It's funny. We were talking about space and how big the distance is. The distance between the nucleus of an atom and the electrons flying around is like equal to the distance of the sun out to the farthest planet in terms of it's most most of matter is actually empty space. Crazy. Just like the universe itself. Yep. <laughs> yep. Wow. Um, Maybe we're all just part of a bigger being. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we're like an atom in the thumb of a nail of a, a of giant. some giant, <laughs> and that giant, and inside our atoms yeah. is a little tiny universe. <laughs> yeah, everyone listening can figure out what we were just. Yes, quoting. what movie? <laughs> come to the Facebook page. <laughs> what yeah, movie exactly. did that come from? Funky transporters, a mighty finicky piece of machinery to be gambling your life on, sir. Kirk just dismisses it. How's this work? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I love that he like pushes this button and he's like, press this one. 30 seconds later, poof. 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 But now, uh, there there was one shot that I noticed in the in the revised version of Doomsday Machine. You know, like a lot of the visual effect shots from the original and from the new version, you know, you see the you see the planet killer, you see the constellation, you see the enterprise, but there's a great shot of the constellation sort of being drawn towards the planet killer. But instead of, like, cutting an edit, you see the constellation, and then you pan to the left, and you see the planet killer. Yeah. Uh, that was a very interesting choice. I thought it was a really interesting choice because you're seeing the scope of the scene. You know what I mean? Yeah, and it also kind of immediately introduces the danger. Like now you, you kind of pan over and see, oh. Oh, there it is. There it is. He's going <laughs> for it, yeah. yeah. They beam Scotty on board. It does not go well. What's the matter with that thing? It's a power drain somewhere, sir. I almost lost you. It'll never work like this. It's the main junction circuitry. I'll get it. I'm thinking, what's Kyle been doing? He's, you know, two guys in the transporter room there. There's a power drain. <laughs> I, 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 I got to say, I mean, I'm not sure who the weakest crew member is, but Kyle, <laughs> he, he doesn't succeed that much. Poor yeah. John Winston. He gets knocked out. He yeah. Gets, yeah. Um, so Scotty goes off to work on the transporter, <laughs> and we have to inform Kirk, whose ship is heading right towards the mouth of that thing, that the transporter is out. And this is this thing. This is why I think this is the most thrilling episode of the original series. There's so much tension. There's so many things going on. This is like classic down-to-the-wire adventure. Yeah, on top of everything. Now, yeah. when on top of this power play between Kirk and Decker, and Spock and Decker, for that matter, uh, now you have this ticking clock yep. 
where the constellation is getting closer to the planet killer and uh, the transporter isn't working and you got to get Kirk off the constellation before the, the constellation destructs from within the planet killer and you hear the, you hear the ticking. Oh, yeah, the ticking by. from the timer. Like, yeah. And you're just like, like if sometimes, you know, I, well, if I'm watching Star Trek late at night and I'm watching this episode, you know, thinking a lot of this go to sleep after it's over and I'm like, this episode's over and I'm totally wired. Yeah, you're, yeah. Totally. <laughs> yeah. Bridge, transporter operational, but this jury rigging won't last for long. He's got to come off now. They inform Kirk. Prepare to beam me aboard on my signal. And he is waiting to get closer and closer, 500 miles, and he looks down at the switch and then he hits it. And now we're on 30 seconds. Beam me aboard. And there's also a moment where Sulu's talking and he says he's 2,000 miles from the planet killer. He is totally sweating. He's sweating, yeah, yeah. Sulu's sweating like crazy in that whole sequence. Hmm. I don't know if it's makeup or if they just they, turn the lights up. I don't uh, know. Uh, but you know what? It, it, it adds to it totally works. He's totally stressed totally out. Totally works. Yeah, they, yeah. They did not powder him down when they should have. Yeah. <laughs> um, and now he says, "Energize," and they say, "Energizing," and there's an explosion. Bridge, it's shorted out again. I wonder how they made those little poofs come up from yeah. the bottom of the transporter cool. platform. I love it. Though. I love it's the really sound. cool. Yeah, the poof. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a little gunpowder smoke you know, pack they put down there. And the Kirk stuff here is so great. Gentlemen, beam me aboard. We can't, Captain. Transporter is out again. And Scotty muttering. <laughs> you know, whenever he mutters to himself, it's before he gets in the They're like, transporter's out again. He's like, fuck us, Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't and know he, what he says. I don't know. I'm not sure what he says either. And he climbs back into the tube. And it's just great. Like, yeah. you know, son of a pup. But if there was if there was any episode, I mean, so so Scotty, uh, first of all, he gets the Constellation moving. He's recharged a phaser bank. He's about to fix the transporter room uh, for a second time. Mm-hmm. He's rigged this 30-second delay for the Constellation to self-destruct from within the, the planet killer. Again, Scotty earns his stripe in this, in this episode big time. Hey, this is Steve jumping in for just a moment to let you know that about a week after the three of us recorded this, I had a full epiphany about this episode, and I couldn't wait to share it with Scott. I just wish we could have had Dave in the room because I would have loved to hear what he had to say. Okay, Scott, here we have Kirk alone on the Constellation. Yeah. Facing his own death. And you know what just occurred to me? What? Is that Decker was alone on the Constellation. He made the sacrifice as the captain. He beamed everyone down to the planet trying to save them their lives. That's what he thinks he's doing. And then what's happening is he is getting the calls from them, please beam us up, please beam us up. And he can't save them. And what's happening with Captain Kirk right at this moment? He has decided to make the same sacrifice. He is risking his own life in the ship all by himself, alone. And what is he saying? He is saying, please beam me up. It's literally the reverse of what was happening to Decker. It's that we've like deconstructed oh my Decker's gosh. tragedy, and You're... now we're replaying it in a new way. Oh my God. And, and it's all happening like in the same exact it's area. Same area. Right in the auxiliary control of the constellation. That's where they found uh, Decker yep. in the beginning of the episode. So, so Decker is alone. Uh, he's getting calls, please beam us up, and, and he's helpless. And now Kirk is in that same position, said, beam me up to the Enterprise. Oh right. my gosh. That is amazing. Oh my gosh, I never thought about that. 20 seconds to detonation. Mr. Scott. 
Mr. Scott. Try inverse phasing. I love that Spock just throws out. He's not even there. He doesn't yeah. know what the problem is. He's just like, you know what? Try this. <laughs> <laughs> and Kirk is like, gentlemen, I suggest you beam me aboard. And the driving theme. Try now, Mr. Kyle. Five. You hear the transporter activating, but you don't see Kirk beam off the constellation. And then the explosion happens. In the new visual effects, I love this pulverizing explosion that this shoots out from the mouth of the planet killer. And you see the planet killer start to fade, the, the power start to fade. And then you hear that, that great score, that great score as Kirk beams into the transporter room. Bridge, we got him through. What? I mean, what a yeah. whew, deep breath. Now, what do you think Kirk thought in those final moments before he got beamed off? Do you think he was like, well, this is it. I'm going to die. I think he's going, I'm probably going to die. Yeah, yeah I guess uh, this well, is my- <laughs> Another question is, how many times has Kirk gone, I think I'm probably going to die? <laughs> yeah. Or, or is he saying, what am I not thinking of? What am I, I right. figure something, you right. know what I mean? So is he thinking that this is his closest brush with death that he has had throughout his duration to this point as the captain of the Enterprise. Like, what other episode have we seen produced to this point that comes close to the immediate so many. I mean, where no man has gone before, Gary Mitchell is right about to smash his head in. Right. If, if Dr. Dane, I mean, there's, there's, a t- he's hanging off the edge of a cliff and Ruck is standing over him. In he's there, about right. to die. Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. there's so, in, in, we just did Who Mourns for Adonai's. The plan was we all uh, gang up on gang Apollo. Up Apollo and I get killed. Mm-hmm, That's mm-hmm. basically right. the plan. Yeah. So I think there's a lot. I mean, I, it, a better question is how many episodes is he not about to die? Well, that's you know, true. in my so it's it's the transporter that's the issue here. In in my head canon, I'm I'm thinking, you know, his his final thoughts in those moments are the Enterprise is going to save me here. She can do it. She yeah. can do it. She, you know what I mean? Oh, that's awesome. Oh, that's transporter. I like your work. idea better. You know? Yeah. 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 I like your idea better. Sensors show all energy sources deactivated. It's quite dead. Well, Matt, he gave his life in an attempt to save others. Not the worst way to go. Indeed, Captain. I presume your log will show that Commodore Decker died in the line of duty. Indeed, a child, Mr. Spock. And once again, we walk by the view screen. Yeah. Great shot. And yeah, and the, the doomsday machine killer, is It's just right yeah. there. Yeah. Uh, I mean, those subtle touches, I have to say, what you have all done with those visual effects, nobody deserved that responsibility more than you because you and Mike Akuda and Denise Akuda loved the original series so much that you could put such flourishes, such detail, such great detail like, I know you love the Cobra Might Maneuver because of what you did with the Viserys. Uh, uh, and I know, um, you know, we've talked uh, elsewhere about the subtle touches of, like, actually showing the Trinary Sun system right. of Triskelion. But the, the opening uh, fanfare for Where No Man Has Gone Before, you actually used the pilot episode of the Enterprise uh, and, you know, when I noticed that, when I saw the little points on the cells, I, yeah. I totally geeked out. But even and I was just talking to Mike and Denise about this um, at the Skirball event, that at the end of The City on the Edge of Forever, during the closing credits, 
in the original version, the smoke coming out of the Guardian kind of freezes up during the closing credits. Right. But in the revised version... Kept it going. Kept it going. Yeah. And I'm like, I, lo- I mean, it's such an obscure little moment, but I went, that's why these were the right people to do this. Yeah, and if only we would have had... More time and more, more money. More time and more money. <laughs> I mean, we really, really could have... Scott and I say the same thing about enterprise incidents all the time. I mean, we if we had a, <laughs> we have more time and more, more money. time and more money. Imagine what the show could be. Ironic, isn't it? Way back in the twentieth century, the H bomb was the ultimate weapon. Their doomsday machine, and we used something like it to destroy another doomsday machine. Probably the first time such a weapon has ever been used for constructive purposes. One of the things I like about this episode is that there is a theme here that relates to our world but they're not hitting it hard. They hit it very, very light. But the reality is we still got a lot of doomsday machines. There's thousands of H-bombs. They are really old. Their computer systems are really old. Old and outdated. And if you look, I don't know how much you've seen, there are many times that we were really, really close. Yeah. So oh. I, we just watched a West Wing episode the other night. We're, we're going through the West Wing with our kids. and it's uh, my, it's, I, I, know, I know we're doing Star Trek. The West Wing might actually be my favorite show of all time. It's a great show. It yeah. is so West brilliant. Wing incidents. What do you think? Yeah. <laughs> They've already done it. They've already done it. The West Wing po- weekly podcast with uh, Josh oh, yeah. Molina, who was in the West Wing, and they had Aaron Sorkin and every single person that worked on that show. Yeah, they did an episode cannot, by episode, right? Yeah, ep- episode by episode. We cannot compete with it. it oh, was, boy. I mean, wow. Yeah, but we were watching an episode, and it was, I don't remember the title of the episode, but it was... Uh, it was one where they learn that there was some kind of accident in a Russian nuclear silo, yeah. and they're talking about how, when they finally get the facts, they're like, someone was trying to steal it, you know? And the fact that, you know, these computers are so old, and they break down, and there's all these... It's terrifying. There, there was one guy in Russia, and I don't know if it's the one talked about in the West Wing, where literally he got the order to launch missiles, and it, his job is to be the person that turns the key. He's not supposed to question it at all. And he looked at it and said, something doesn't feel right, and he refused to do it. And that's the old, that one guy is the only reason that the world wasn't essentially wiped oh out. Wow, unbelievable. Yeah. I can't help wondering if there are any more of those weapons wandering around the universe. Well, I certainly hope not. I found one quite sufficient. To end on a coonism. Yeah. Right? Not a particularly funny one, but it's fine. But it's, it's fine. fine. It's, it's, they don't go... Too far with the yep. communism. Yeah, I would have preferred this. Right. I would have preferred it to be a little more solemn. Oh, because of Decker and yeah, and and you know, look, Decker's crazy in this, and he's you know an an antagonist, but you still feel for the guy. Absolutely, Absolutely. Yeah, he's totally. a tragic you know? figure. So it would have been, I, I don't know, something a little more solemn would have been better for me. But well, well yeah, I mean, this is something throughout the show. It's kind of like there there are a few we've talked about where like those ones were great. And a lot of them are like, okay, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but but speaking of that tragic figure, William Wyndham, he he had uh, something to say about the Doomsday Machine. And uh, if you've ever met William Wyndham, uh, he's a guy who shoots from the hip and says what he wants. So this is what he said: Everyone there took what they were doing so seriously. I like to poke fun at science fiction or anything else for that matter, but they were just enraptured with these cardboard control panels and the lights that went on and off. On one hand, it was ludicrous. On the other hand, it wasn't any worse than a lot of television that we had back in those days. I was glad for the job. I like working, and I worked a lot, but it's a lot of crap. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. That is a window into the mind of the late, great William Wyndham. Um. 
Dave, what you, what is your feelings having gone through this just beat by beat? What are your feelings about the Doomsday Machine? Well, you know, this is probably uh, one of my top five episodes of the show, and probably one of the ones I've seen the most. So I was very familiar with it. But when you were prescribed to sit down and watch something with a, a set of different eyes for a minute, it's always much more interesting. And and thanks to what you guys are doing and oh. talking about. You know, it's all a happy happenstance, you know, that that things build the way you guys are talking about. Because obviously the writers didn't really, you know, they, they're doing a weekly show. They weren't planning this giant mythology and they didn't have the, the foresight to know in 55 years from now, this is going to be still an iconic, you know. They were just doing their jobs and getting it done. But the connection points that you guys have made along the way has made it so much more enjoyable and changed the way I look at these episodes now that watching this again was just a, a whole new treat for me. Oh, that's awesome. First of all, that's extremely high praise. That means the world coming from you, not just because of your love for, for Star Trek, not just because you've, you've worked on Star Trek in various forms, uh, working on revised, uh, you know, the remastered uh, original series, but as a friend, you know, we've known each other a long time, that, that means the world. And, and I got to say, you know, that the, the way that Star Trek has opened, why, why, thinking of the original series in, in a completely different way, when we hear that kind of reaction from you uh, and from p- people who've been listening to Enterprise Incidents all this time who say, and we get this a lot, that, that they are seeing Star Trek in a whole new light. Believe me, we, Steve and I, feel the exact same way. And, and in terms of like tying things together, you know, I walked into this room today, which it's great to do it in person compared to when we did court martial. Uh, but I walked in here with a whole lot of thoughts, a whole lot of ideas. Steve, thinking about the way that we've connected things, thinking back to, to that, that great line from Gary Mitchell, uh, that uh, great because of the way it's, it's explained a lot about Kirk, uh, with a whole lot of ideas. But it wasn't until we were in the moment that I realized wow, uh, there actually is a connection to, to, from Decker to Kirk, as we will see when we cover Obsession. And I didn't even think about that until we were in the moment. A revelation that anytime you can get something new out of something you've seen or heard hundreds of times, is a, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing that at this stage of our lives, we're still discovering new things about the greatest Star Trek show of them all. So for me, Doomsday Machine, it just top to bottom works. There's, I, it's, you know, I've found fault with even some good episodes sometimes. Moment to moment, it's so thrilling. It's so exciting. It has so many great moments. It has the journey of a supporting character that is super compelling, super tragic. It has conflicts that are really, really deep. And it is absolutely thrilling right down to the last seconds where Kirk gets rescued. I think it's a fantastic episode of television. Doomsday Machine is is a perfect episode. It's not just a perfect episode of Star Trek. It's a perfect episode of television. It's great science fiction. And uh, a couple years ago, I I did a, a YouTube series called Movie Fights where oh, yeah. uh, the question was, like, what's the greatest Star Trek episode ever? And, and, I, and it was me and two other contestants. One of them was Brandon Braggett. And, uh, you know, we each, we each had to pick, like, what is, like, the quintessential, like, the, just the, the, the best Star Trek episode that even non-fans would love and everything like that. And uh, I picked Doomsday Machine. 
and I won the argument, uh, because, it, I mean, it, on top of everything, and we talked about this, Steve, when we were talking about who mourns for Adonai's, when we were talking about Friday's Child, about how another, another reason why the beginning of the second season is so great for Star Trek is you're seeing all, all the characters, not just Kirk and Spock, but McCoy and, and Scotty and Sulu, uh, you know, really adds so much. And even though Uhura isn't in this episode, even though Chekhov, strangely, is not in this episode, like the, the, the contributions that like Sue and especially Scotty make, I think this is like the, the best Scotty episode because even though he's not in command taking over from Kirk and Spock while they're gone, he is doing his best. It's, 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 it's his finest hour. Yeah, he's doing, what, he's doing what Scotty does best. And it's also it's also a little too bad that Halfway through the show, we lose McCoy. Yeah, it, it would have been interesting yeah. to see McCoy and on the bridge at the end. Yeah. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. yeah, that's a good point. That was an amazing conversation. Absolutely one for the books. And if that wasn't enough, ladies and gentlemen, loyal fans of Enterprise Incidents, here now is our interview with the writer of the Doomsday Machine. Joining us from Paris, France, and we're in L.A., so you can figure out the time difference, but it doesn't matter. We're so excited. Here is Norman Spinway. We are so excited to be joined by the writer of The Doomsday Machine, Norman Spinrad. Norman, thank you so much for joining us on Enterprise Incidents for what is, without question, the most popular episode of Star Trek ever produced. Thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome. So the first question really is what your first meeting with Roddenberry happened at a convention back in the 60s, and then he invited you to, to write a screenplay for Star Trek. Is that right? Well, briefly, that's right, but it's much more complicated. <laughs> I, I met Gene yeah, at conventions, uh, and I, for various reasons, I was a, a fairly important uh, critic of, of films in L.A. Mm. For other reasons... Uh, I had the insight on 2001 directly with author. With author. Then I saw Gene, uh, and I wrote a long thing about 2001 before, as it came out, where I said, among other things, that Gene's thing was better. I was Gene calls me. It seems to me, you know, just like for courtesy, he says, "Would you like to come in and, and you know, and pitch me a, a Star Trek?" But I said, and I it was like really. A smart thing to do, but it was really true. I said, Gene, call me back in six weeks. I'm, I'm in the middle of an important book. <laughs> uh, but Gene did call me. I had never written any TV. I didn't even know what uh, a script looked like. Hmm. First thing Gene says to me, we're, we're, running, we're running out of money. Uh, can you come up with something that we can just shoot in standing sets? Hmm. And I had a story, uh, actually a novella that didn't really work too well. It didn't sell, which was sort of a take on Moby Dick. So I said, yeah, I do have something. And I told him the story. And he said, uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, let's do it. And I wrote the thing. Uh, and then he said to me something that they never say to writers, any writers in television in all the season. The last person they want on this, you know, they're shooting, they're shooting in six days. The last thing they want is the writer uh, there. It's, un, it's, it's just about unheard of. Right. Gene comes to me and says, would you like to sit in on a shooting? I said, yeah, okay. <laughs> That's how it started. 
I'm curious. So had, were you a science fiction fan as a kid? Not in the fin in the fans sense. I read science fiction. I didn't know that fandom existed. Mm. The way it started was I had a convenient cold in, in, when I was about 11 years old or 10 years old. And I got to stay home for a week or so. And somebody gave my mother a whole bunch of science fiction magazines. <laughs> and that's how it started. Wow. Uh, I didn't know anything about fandom until I had published two books. I knew nothing about it. So when you wrote your initial outline and initial pass for the Doomsday Machine, how was it different from the version that we saw on TV in 1967? Not very much. Gene approved my treatment. Said, you know, do a second, do a second draft, do a second draft, and he said uh, that's pretty good. Uh, then they did some changes, but there were minor changes. I, I didn't, I didn't complain about them. Mm. One was that Captain Kirk had a contract that said that he had to have more words than Spock. So I was there, I was there at the at the shooting, and uh, he was taking words out of the script. It never worked because my original thing had a. a Captain Kirk says something, Spock says something, Captain Kirk says something. He took out Spock, and it never worked. So I went to the, I went to the director, and I said, I'm this 27-year-old kid who's never been on something like this. And I said, look, I, I, I can tell you why you're having a problem, and I'll tell you how to fix it. I know you can't put the, the, the words back in, but couldn't you just have uh, Spock grunt in the middle? <laughs> and that's what he did, and the six shot, and that was it. I had nothing to complain about, really. Well, there was only one thing. When I saw it, and I saw the you know, the, the, the actual doomsday machine, I said, Jesus, Gene, that, that looks like a, an airplane thing, on a, you know, in, a, in, a, in an airport. Yeah, yeah, but covered in cement. <laughs> yeah, and he says, well, actually, that's what it is, because that's what we could afford. <laughs> um, that's what things were like then. But no, I had, I had, I had no problem with it. I, I, first of all, I was a, I may have been a, a neophyte scriptwriter, but I was a pretty important critic of films. I had been around it a lot, and one thing I knew is that films or movies or TV they are not one person's creation. Mm -hmm. Right. They're company creation and. And, and to be foolish and to think that your words being touched at all was, you know, was, was, was room for, for, for causing trouble, as certain friends of mine uh, certainly did, uh, who uh, got into bad stuff with, with, with Gene. I knew, I, I knew what I was supposed to do in that. And Gene, this was really Gene's baby. Gene was the true creator of, of Star Trek itself. And uh, there were some people who... Uh, Helped him do it, and I was and I was one of them. And Gene and I remained friends for a very long time. Tried to do other things, but the, the Gene sort of was isolated in Hollywood because he got the better with the with the letters and everything. And and, and, and finally, when the thing was pulled after three three things, Gene made a deal with them. He said, "I'll give you rights to the three three years of." Uh, a video. All I want back is I want the rights to all the all the comic books, 
<laughs> all the other books, all the kind of stuff. So he really, you know, got the better of them. So they didn't like Gene. We tried to, Gene and I tried to even re, uh, re, revise the, the uh, show before the first movie was made. Uh, we never got there. Norman, I wanted to circle back to something you said right when we started, which is you, you were comparing uh, Star Trek to 2001 and that you liked Gene's show better. I'm very curious of what what was it about Star Trek that you really liked? Well, a lot of things. Um, for one thing, Gene knew what a story was. Uh, and the other thing, I didn't see that there was a story. Um, yeah. In fact, 2001 was supposed to end in a different way with, 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 with beautiful aliens. And this is I got directly from Arthur. And Arthur said, we gave up on it. <laughs> We couldn't do that. Also, Gene had uh, a political idealism involved in, in, in at least the beginning of it, too. And then you look at the difference, which came later, uh, between Star Wars and Star Trek. Gene was trying to do a, a different thing. It was more serious. He took it, he took it seriously, and he understood how to write. He also wrote a lot of the better ones himself. That's for sure. I'm not saying better than me. I'm not better than me, but he was good. He was good. And had balls, because when he couldn't get the first thing through, he went out, shot another one differently, and won. Um, and, and did a lot of other things. Uh, we worked on a whole bunch of other things that didn't go on. We tried to do the complete good police department, because he had been a cop. Right. I don't know if you know his story. Oh, yeah, we sure do. <laughs> uh, of how he became... A writer. Yeah, yeah. Oh, he, yeah. Yeah, and they, he said, I could do better than this. And they had to let him try. And he could do better than what they had. And that's how that's how it started. So, so Norman, the question is, you know, you actually got to be on the set while they were filming The Doomsday Machine. What was Mark Daniels, the director, like? What was Gene Kuhn, the producer, like? Mark direct, Mark was 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 the was the director. I yeah, I liked him. I liked him, and they didn't mind having me there for whatever reason. You know the the business between Spock and uh, that and, and Bill. You know was kind of funny. That was kind of funny. They the problem was that 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 Bill would always be over you know overshot by Mister Spock just by walking onto the onto the deck into the shot, but. It, it was never really a personal uh, thing like that. It was just some ego thing. And, and Bill was frustrated that he was so often not the star in the shot and all that kind of stuff. I know I should be saying terrible things and better stories. Maybe, but, uh, I also, after that, was doing all kinds of various things with Jane. Years later, I tried to make a, a deal with one of the third one or the fourth one or the fifth ones. And I sent him something treatment or something and they they were so stupid that they couldn't say my name right and they say this thing is is not very good you should uh, take a look at the doomsday machine and that's the way you're supposed to do it they have no idea who they were talking to <laughs> wow but i'm still in show business i'm curious what what would you think what would the you know you were in your mid-20s when you wrote this if someone had come along to you then and said hey listen they are still going to be talking about this episode of television 55 years from now, what would you have I thought? wouldn't have believed it. I wouldn't have believed it. You know, I've written over 20 novels, over 100 short stories, a lot of critics and stuff. Probably 
the sum total of everything I published written, I would say would, 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 would read by certainly less than 10 million people or probably a lot less. But I would figure that a billion people have seen the Doomsday Machine. A billion people? Yeah. It's about right. Something like, it's, <laughs> it's about like that. That first Star Trek done by, really done by, by Gene, I think has entered um, English literature. That's why we're covering good on Enterprise. And on and on and on. <laughs> They've already done cleaner versions of, 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 of Doomsday Machine, a bunch of other stuff. Uh, it looks much better than the first thing. Except what it is the first thing, only they cleaned up a lot of crap. And there was an argument with them whether we should really make a better doomsday machine because they could afford it. But they said, no, we're going to stick with the original, which was, they wanted it for posterity or something. All right. So, Norman, the last question we have for you is no conversation about the doomsday machine could be complete without the discussion of William Wyndham as Commodore Decker who gave just one of the very best performances by a guest star on the original Star Trek series. What did you think of William Wyndham's performance? And I understand that you had another actor in mind to play Decker. It wasn't me. It was Gene had another actor. It was Robert Ryan. He wanted Robert Ryan. He said Robert Ryan wanted to do it. Like That's the only thing that really got changed. And, and, it, was, and it was very subtle. Ryan didn't do it. Williams did. And he played it differently. He played it differently than, than Robert Ryan would have done. But I think he did a good job. It was not the way I wrote the character because I thought I was writing the character for a different sort of actor. But he's a good actor. He didn't really change the, lit, the, the script. He changed the, the state which he gave to the words that were written for Ryan. Uh, um, a really hard thing to do. But he, he had a different concept of what it should be. And maybe because he knew, if he knew, that they really wanted Brian. If he did, then maybe in his head, there was something that said, well, I got to show them that they did the right thing, that I'm a better actor than Ryan. I don't know. I'm just, I'm, I'm making that up. I have no, whether that's true or not. But again, that's the kind of thing you do when you're doing films and stuff. Things are going to be different from what you wrote. That's the way it works when it works. A lot of times it isn't like that. Okay. You, you want a final story? Sure, of course. One day, I had written a review of 2001, not of 2001, of... Uh, Clockwork Orange? Yeah. So I wrote a long thing about that. Okay. The last word that I wrote was Clockwork Orange is like a Clockwork Orange. Late at night in L.A., I get a phone call. It's from Warren Beatty, whose, whose girlfriend said, you've got to read this, got to read this. And, and he read it, and he um, found my phone number. I never hide myself. And, and he said, you know, he said, yeah, I read that thing. He had never read anything else I had written. And then he says to me, you're not just a critic, right? You do something creative yourself. And I said, well, yeah, how did you know that? I'm an, I'm a novelist. And he said, because if you haven't practiced any art, you can't write criticism like that. And that is something that has stood with me for a long time. It was a very intelligent thing that Beatty said and something that really stuck with me. And that's why I took criticism still I do journalism, I do novels. Uh, um, some people say teachers are, are writers who can't write, but some writers are writers who can write and can't teach. <laughs> it goes the same way criticism. Well, Norman, Norman Spinrad, we are so grateful that you joined us. 
for our conversation on the Doomsday Machine. And by the way, ladies and gentlemen, Norman is joining us from Paris, and Steve and I are in L.A., so with a nine-hour time difference, uh, getting this to, to all line up has uh, definitely been absolutely worth it. Norman Spinrad, thank you so very much. Okay, you too. Scott, I can't even begin to tell you how thrilling it was to get to talk to the actual writer of the Doomsday Machine. The actual writer of the most popular Star Trek episode of them all. That's one of the great things, so many great things about doing Enterprise Incidents with you. But to be able to talk to people like Ralph Sinetsky for the two episodes he's done with us so far, and now to get the writer of the Doomsday Machine and to hear his thoughts and his recollections on it, Really, really special. This this means so much. It absolutely does, and I hope it meant a lot to you. And if you, we would love to hear what you thought of not only the Doomsday Machine, but also our conversation with Norman Spinrad. You could visit us on our Facebook page. Just do a search for Enterprise Incidents. We will have some questions up from this episode, and Scott always posts such great pictures. If you want to follow us on Twitter, it's Enter Incidents. Instagram, it's Enterprise Incidents. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts and leave your reviews there. They are really, really helpful. They continue to help people find the show. You can also subscribe on other places, other platforms, Spotify, Overcast, YouTube. On YouTube, leave your comments. And if you want to reach me, you could do it at SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram. And if you want to check out the cinephiles, I've already talked about Dr. Strangelove, which certainly deals with the doomsday machine. And another kind of doomsday machine is being captained by Marco Ramius, Sean Connery, and Hunt for Red October, which is another fantastic episode of the cinephiles. Did you guys on cinephiles ever cover failsafe? We haven't done it, no. Okay, because when you do... That will be another, another great episode day, of The yeah. Cinephiles. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at MovieMance. And like Steve said, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave your reviews. And head over to our Facebook page at Enterprise Incidents. Uh, we love to engage with you all about uh, about Star Trek. And we, we definitely love reading your comments and your perspectives and everything. Uh, so, so keep those coming. Head over to our, our Facebook page and make sure you follow us on Facebook and on Twitter and on Instagram. But... Dave Rossi, where can people find you? Uh, I am on Twitter at uh, underscore it means hope, uh, which is a reference to my other favorite character besides Captain Kirk, which is Superman, but that's where I am on Twitter. Remember, Jimmy, a good reporter doesn't get great stories. A good reporter reporter makes makes them them great. great. Yes, crossing the streams with Superman, (laughs) one of the best movies of all time. But Dave, you know, it means so much to have you back here on Enterprise Incident, and you will return. Uh, Thank Uh, you so much, guys. I got to tell you, having this communal experience over an episode and being able to just you know on twitter it look we we talk in 120 you right. know, characters um about very top level kinds of things but being able to sit down with other fans and be a fan yeah uh, again yeah. you know and really dive into these things is just so much fun i recommend everybody get your posse together watch an episode and then sit down and really talk about it and it's it, it's really enjoyable it's so enjoyable and the fact you know the fact that we are able to do this with a show that is now 55 years old yeah. it really goes to show you that it's it's shakespeare of, of our of our time that that there is so much to get out of these episodes that they didn't plan you know you watch them once or twice and that's it and look look at how much uh, we've dived into them and on the next episode of enterprise incidents uh we go to a darker side we we explore something that is uh, a little preposterous but it's still a very entertaining episode it is another scotty episode and it is a scotty episode like no other it is wolf in the fold so please join us 
on the next Enterprise Incidents. Until then, keep going boldly.